Wood Unleashed number 77. We have a special focus on Scientology and aliens. And a huge thank you to Stephen Knight for stepping up to the plate while Andrew Gold gallivants across America trying to raise his profile, selling his soul to the devil, no doubt. So cheers, Stephen, for joining us. Ah, thanks for having me, Sean. It's always fun. What's Andrew up to again? He's, uh, <laughs> Ash described it as selling his soul for the devil. That's but all I need to know. That that's, that checks out. That's fine. No more, no <laughs> more he's questions. Act, he's actually a guest on certain American podcasts. So he is endeavouring to raise his profile um, before he ditches us or tries to carve the channel up in the event of my death. <laughs> 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 so if you're not familiar with Outward Unleashed, it is an eclectic show, four and a quarter hours long, commencing at... 5.45 p.m. UK every Wednesday. And this channel has a main focus on prison stories and, you know, crime. But we range across broad subjects. Bigfoot, aliens, conspiracies, politics, the royal family. And tonight we've got seven guests across the show. First two hours exclusively on YouTube. Hours three and four on Patreon. And thanks to all the patrons, we've built a great community over there, and we can talk about things we can't talk about on this platform. And we've seen, you know, what's happened to Russell Brand recently. We've seen what's happened to my friend Patrick at Valuetainment recently. It seems it's getting more and more restrictive. So, if you get a chance, please support us on Patreon. So we start with 15 minutes of guest intros. We'll discuss some news. Stories if we've got time, including the PayPal fiasco. Then our first guest of the night, returning for his second appearance, is former Scientologist Doug Scott Kramer. Doug is going to be discussing some of the latest developments with the Church of Scientology and the leader, David Miscavige. He's also going to be speaking about some of the highest profile members, such as Tom Cruise and John Travolta, not to mention a movement to declassify the church as a charity so that they will have to start paying taxes. I mean, aren't you guys sick of all these wealthy people shielding themselves from having to pay taxes by forming charitable foundations and other parasitic entities? All right, so second guest is Mike Rick Secker. He has appeared on the Alaska Triangle, Ancient Aliens, and many other popular TV shows. He's also produced Shadow Dimension. His latest book is, in, is called The Alaska Triangle. It was released last year. Since 1988, more than 16,000 people have gone missing in the Alaska Triangle. And tonight, Mike will be sharing his theories about what the hell is happening. So it sounds like I'm going to learn something new tonight. I've never heard of the Alaska Triangle. Put a one in the chat if you have heard of the Alaska Triangle. Put a two in the chat if you have not heard of the Alaska Triangle. You're looking forward to finding out about it. And then, Stephen, you've got the next two guests. Did you have the... Um, line up in front of you. Does that does that sent it to you? I do indeed. Yes. So, uh, where did you just you just had Mike didn't you? So from seven uh, till half seven, uh, Doug Scott Kramer will be dropping back in for uh, thirty minutes. Uh, so I'll be taking the second half of the interview, and Doug will be doing a Q and A with the live chat. So make sure you get plenty of questions in. Uh, and he's obviously, as uh, uh, Sean mentioned before, uh, he's very he's well known for being a former member of the Church of Scientology. Uh, after that, I believe uh, it's it's me again. Would you believe it? So I'll be speaking from uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Survivor, speaking to rather Juliet Bryant. Uh, she'll be coming back. Oh no, that's you. I'm getting ahead of myself, Sean. Yeah, you've got 
is it Roderick Martin? After Doug Scott Crane. Of course I have, yeah. So uh, he, he'll be the last guest for the YouTube section. Uh, he's a Discovery uh, Plus um, TV host uh, of Alien Endgame. That's Roderick Martin. Mm -hmm. He's got a YouTube channel called Why the Big Secret, where he discusses government UFO cover-ups, whether UFOs pose a threat to humanity, and whether the B Bermuda Triangle can be linked to aliens. Maybe I should ask wow. him about the Alaska Triangle as well. <laughs> and it looks like about two-thirds of the viewers have not heard of the Alaska Triangle, looking at the votes that have come in. Thanks for that, guys. First guest on Patreon is indeed Juliet Bryant. She's coming back. It was absolutely eye-opening what she said about the famous people that and the politicians who were involved with E and M, who killed E, royal family, secret societies, mind control. She's going to be getting to all that tonight. And she's also got a book coming out. And then we've got Andy West, who teaches philosophy in prisons. What a great guy. I mean, that is definitely... You know, anything in prison, if you're teaching it, it is like gold because there's such lack of resources. So anyone who goes in, usually they have got to put up with all kinds of nonsense to get in the prison in the first place. Go for all kinds of searches and hardships then on your way into the prison. Get treated like crap because you're an inconvenience, you know, as you're a security risk. And once you're finally in there then, to get the guys out of their cells and get them in a the room, that's not easy either. So... Andy West is obviously doing really good humanitarian work if he's teaching philosophy in prisons. Every day he has conversations with people inside about their lives, discusses their ideas and feelings, and listens as they explore new ways to think about their situation. Andy has published his book, The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family, and philosophy, which we'll be talking about tonight, yeah. One of our mantras on this channel is less incarceration and more education. Let's stop this war on drugs, this insane mass incarceration model that we're following from america and why don't we follow the scandinavians who've got the highest rate of success in the world the lowest recidivism in the world because they give them education surprise surprise they don't go out and commit more crimes if you, if you give them education in america it's just drug and gang infested mayhem 50 dollars at the gate have a nice day when they're getting released and they come right back but as soon as they come back sixty thousand dollars a year of taxpayers money per person Human beings reduced to commodities for the parasitic prison industrial complex to feast off. All right, so after Andy, it's going to be Stephen with David Satter. Do you want to do that one? The last sure, two? yeah. Uh, David Satter is a leading commentator on Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, he's the author of five books on Russia and the creator of a documentary film on the fall of the USSR. Uh, in his most recent book, Never Speak to Strangers and Other Writing from Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, an anthology of his writing from sort of the 1976 period to 2019. Um, he's, I think as well, the fact here I've got is that Vladimir Putin also banned David from ever entering Russia again. And yeah. as we know, being banned from Russia doesn't necessarily mean you are safe from the reaches of Russia, doesn't it? So it'll be interesting to speak to him about that. Yeah, and I'm banned from America. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was banned from Woolworths, but that's a whole different story. Um, yeah, and I think uh, following up from that, uh, I'll be speaking at uh, 20 to 10 to author Lily Dunn. Uh, she'll be closing the show out. Uh, so when Lily uh, Dunn was just six years old, 
Her father left the family home to follow his guru to India, trading domestic life for clothes dyed in oranges and reds and the promise of enlightenment with the cult of Bhagwan Sri Ranish. Rajneesh will get the uh, correct pronunciation from uh, Lily on that later, I imagine. Uh, since then, he's been a complete mystery to her. Uh, she grew up enthralled by the image of him, effervescent, ambitious and elusive, a writer, a publisher, an entrepreneur. I'm sure all them words were just put in to trip me up. Uh, but a man who would uh, appear with gifts from faraway places and with whom she spent the long, hot summers of, summers of her teenage years in Italy uh, in the company of his wild and wealthy friends. Uh, but there is far more to this story. Uh, and that's what she covers in her book, The Sins of My Father. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to speak to her about that tonight. There's a lot more to this story. Have you watched Wild Wild Country, Stephen? I've not. I'm completely in the dark about this. I might get some time before we speak, actually. But uh, it, it, do you want to spoil it now or do I need to find out in real time? I'll, I'll just effect? give you a little bit about Well, Well Country. It's one of my favourite documentaries and it's about this cult. So they're getting kicked out of India, right? So they've relocated to this rural part of America and they just start showing up wearing these orange outfits and all the locals are like, God damn, who are you guys? And they're like, more of us are coming. More wow. of us are coming. And then the town fills up. And then the whole area fills up. And then they're just busting people in and everything. And then they start changing the names of the roads. They've got their own police force. They've got their own government. And then they're like trying to get elected to run to run the county. Elected. It just gets bigger and bigger. They've got their own police. They've, they've got like, they're out with the weapons firing. They bust in homeless people, Vietnam vets and stuff from all over the country to increase their votes. And it just gets more and more and more insane all the way through the documentary. That, that, I mean, that doesn't even sound like a documentary. That sounds like a John Carpenter movie. And that's it ends, excellent. It ends, yeah. with it ends with poisonings and murders. <laughs> right, and this is definitely going, going on the list. Yeah, people thanks going for jail, that. People fleeing the country, people going to jail. But the guru, he doesn't speak. So he's got a woman who's his uh, sidekick, Ma Anand Sheila. So because he doesn't actually give the orders to poison anyone because he can't, he's on, he's on a vow of silence. They can't get him for it. So, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating. That's going on the list. Thank you for that. We've got a couple of minutes then to talk about PayPal. So apparently, the website for PayPal cancellations has been up five hundred percent recently. The shares crashed, and. <laughs> they're saying that um, they didn't mean to do it in the first place now <laughs> what do you think Stephen? they've dialed it back haven't they I think somebody uncovered some bit of legal aid in their um, terms and conditions that suggested PayPal could remove a sum of $2,500 from your PayPal account if you said anything that could harm the reputation of PayPal and I think they actually specified that that would be a recurring fine depending on how many damaging things you'd said about the company, which is just a really strange policy. And, and that got exposed via social media, a lot of attention and heat on them. And I think that accounts for many of the cancellations you just mentioned. And PayPal did actually roll it back and said, actually, we're not going to implement this. What is quite clearly the strangest, most draconian policy I can think of for a, a money transfer company. <laughs> yeah, it says, uh, finding people $2,500 wasn't its greatest idea surprise surprise for misinformation for promoting whatever paypal determines is misinformation i mean what gives them the right to try and censor people 
That is preposterous. What happened to freedom of speech? Yeah, and the, the definition of misinformation, I imagine, would not be very clearly defined, as with most social media platforms and people that operate in this space. They have some very vague terms in their terms and conditions, which can be, I suppose, interpreted in, in many different ways, depending on your political leanings. It's just a catch-all, isn't it? If, if they mm. don't like what you're saying, we're going to censor it, pretending that it's, you know, misinformation, so that they're the good guys. It is absolutely Orwellian. So the online financial BMOF has updated its terms and conditions, removing a new clause which threatened users who published misinformation. The terms and conditions didn't offer any information about who would decide what was misinformation or what any process for an appeal would be. PayPal <laughs> reneged on the policy change on October 8th, claiming the notice was an inclusion, was an error that included incorrect information. But following a massive social media controversy, PayPal has lost thousands of customers. In data obtained by Sky from the global online analytics firm SimilarWeb, visits to the PayPal close my account sections for both personal and business accounts spiked 557% in one day. On October 8th, there were more than 44,000 visits to the close account sections and then 52,000, amounting to almost 100K, which is a massive uptick from the average of 7,000 uh, being the most in a single day. And if you look at the shirt, for the last six months, they've been going, it did hit most around July, but it was back up at 95. And then when it announced, when all this stuff come out, it, it, it got smacked right down to 80, it's back up at 84 today, but billions of dollars were wiped off the market cap. So put a one in the chat. If you are four, PayPal fining people 2,500 for misinformation. Put a two in the chat if you think that's absolute bloody insanity. Somebody just put in the chat that free speech cost 2,500 bucks, which is, <laughs> we've, we finally got a monetary value on freedom of expression. And some of the viewers are saying that the banks are pulling overdrafts on people for misinformation. Is that for misinformation as well? That's crazy. Wow. I do know that PayPal does partner with the big credit card companies, don't they? And I think a lot oh. of them, they make the demands about who should be on their platform and who shouldn't. So it's not necessarily PayPal centralized making all the decisions. I think they get a lot of pressure from sort of advertisers and credit card companies, things like that. There's a few high profile people that have been kicked off that platform at the request of the actual credit card companies. Wow, we've got unanimous twos on that one. All right, Stephen, so I'm going to take the first guest now then and we will be seeing you forthwith and thanks for joining us for the intro no problem see you soon cheers all right and people are asking oh ash has just pointed out that um paypal has pulled out an andrew tate recently as well so that's interesting all right so some people are asking for the name of that documentary mentioned earlier about the Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh <laughs> and his assistant Martin and Sheila. And the, <laughs> ended, they ended up in Wasco County, Oregon. It's wild, wild country and you can watch it on Netflix. Right, so we're going to be bringing in Doug Scott Kramer. Here we go. Hey, brother, how's it going? Hey, hey Sean, how are you, man? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for joining us again. We've been getting... Excellent responses to what you've previously said. People are fascinated by it, by your own journey and, you know, your bravery going up against these people. And is, is there anything you'd just like to say to the viewers as, by way of introduction first? 
Well, I just wanted to say, I really appreciate you having me on again. And um, by way of introduction, I guess we left it off in the last interview where um, we kind of laid out my whole experience. So I guess we wouldn't want to redo that. But Ash mentioned perhaps starting with what's it like waking up out of a cult like Scientology that you grow up in for most of your life? Yeah, I would, I would, let's pick up there, but I would just give the viewers a little bit of, you know, about how you got into it, uh, how many sure. years you're in it. Just, just, a, just sure. a sum, in summary version. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so real quick, it's sometimes hard for me to do, Sean, because it's kind of a complex story. I have a whole YouTube channel trying to break down this mind trap because how can an idiot fall for something like this? But it's a really complex trap um, that this guy Hubbard developed. And my dad got into it by simply um, seeing an ad in a newspaper one day when he was at work and it said, Dianetics, learn how to fix your family problems, learn how to communicate better. Something that um, caught his attention along the line of communication because he didn't know how to communicate with this very well. So he got involved in it when I was nine, brought the mind virus known as Scientology back to the family and spread it to all of us slowly. Again, I'm not, not gonna repeat the stuff we did last time. I got into it in my early 20s when I hit a vulnerable point and I was in it till my early 30s when a friend of mine from my acting class just happened to drop off a cult book on my doorstep called Combating Cult Mind Control by Steve Hassan. I read it and within 20 minutes, my life completely changed. And that was in January 2008. We're towards the end of 2022 now. And over 14 years later, it's still a trip thinking that that wasn't real. Such was the power of the mind control and the hypnosis I was under for most of my life. Yeah, because I remember watching documentaries about cults when I was young and they would like family members would get people out of these cults and then they'd, they'd bring in deprogrammers because mm -hmm. even though they were starting to see or they hadn't saw at all, it must be so conflictual as you've been extracted, if you've been submerged in something for years, decades even, even when someone's telling you how preposterous it is, yeah. it, it must be an assault on your core and your entire belief system. Is that, did you go through something similar? It really is, Sean. I, I was, um, my only outlet was my acting class at the time. That actually prevented me from putting a gun to my head because that was kind of my psychotherapy. I was so... This is hard to explain because it's literally like um, the way I describe it is imagine all your beliefs that you've ever had in your life stored subconsciously on a hard drive and then that's completely deleted. So I kind of reverted back to what it was like as if I was six years old. I didn't know who I was. My self-identity and the core of who I was was completely shattered. And not only that, I now have to go against my parents and the cult who are now going to turn on me while I'm trying to figure out not only the problems that Scientology didn't handle. So now I have to undo all the mind control with Scientology, but what about all the problems that I never dealt with and ran away from in a cult? So the amount of going within and trying to figure out what happened to me, reading a thousand books was a really long, it was a decades long process to actually feel grounded for the first time in my life to be safe from these maniacs. And I did lose my family and everything in the process. My dad is at the very top of the bridge, which by the way is called OT8. Um, just real quick for the listeners, o, um, OT stands for operating Thetan. A Thetan is a spiritual being. That's who you are in Scientology. So for 20 years, my dad has been at the very top of the bridge. He's as about as robotic and mind controlled as you can get. 
And to go against my father in particular, and my mother who's not a full-on Scientologist, but she got sucked into it, moved up the levels to sort of keep the family together. And then also my sister and her grandkids, they're locked into the codependency of the family situation and Scientology is the theme that locks all of our family together. So when I left that, it was an unbelievable experience that when I tried to explain it to my friend, Sean, in my acting class, it's all I would talk about because I needed to get it out. I needed somebody to understand. They would often tell me I was an idiot. Stop talking about it. Put Scientology aside and focus on your acting career, dude. Stop going on and on about this. So unless somebody's lived it or come out of um, not just Scientology, but any cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons um, can be very uh, cult-like. There's a whole bunch of them. So anybody that's coming out of a cult would know what I'm talking about. But yeah, it really does suck that you can't get somebody. And you, I really desperately needed it. I needed somebody to understand what I went through, but they simply didn't. Hold on a minute, Doug. You said then that you had these unresolved issues that were never addressed during your years within Scientology. But when I went into the Scientology Center in London and filled out the questionnaire, they immediately pointed out my unresolved issues and said that if I signed up, they were going to fix them. Are you saying that that didn't actually happen to you? They didn't fix these issues? Well, why didn't you sign up and get your issues fixed, Sean? Why didn't you take to it? It sounded great, right? Not only do they not fix your, your issues, you I had so many issues from Scientology, and then I was paranoid about... I was I kind of went under the radar because... I didn't want to, I didn't want to speak out because I didn't, I just, my, my first task was to understand what happened to me. So I wasn't a real threat and they didn't quote unquote fair game me too much to your listeners. Fair game was what Scientology does to people. If you speak out, um, they might send private investigators on you. There's, um, the gals from the Danny Masterson case, which is happening right now, which you may want to talk about a little later. They have been allegedly fair gamed. Um, they will poison your pets. They will, they're a mafia organization. So they intimidate you to be quiet. And um, yeah, man, I, not only do they not handle your problem, Sean, I want to be really upfront because I noticed in the comments here, some guy was saying, oh, this is the guy that had some problems with Scientology, but it's not all bad. Let me be really clear. It's a mind control operation formed by a lover of Crowley, a true hardcore evil. I would call him a Satanist. That's what Scientology is completely based around, but is totally hidden as tools for life. So you're stepping into a trap that's like boiling a frog in water. It's really slow. And I have a feeling that guy's either an ex or a Scientologist, or they also will have people from OSA, by the way, uh, their little intelligence people put little snipey comments in. It's a trap from the beginning. And it seems good because they bring you in with cheese, right? Like they do with any cult. So that guy might be a newbie and uh, might be eight, eight months deep and just loving the basic choruses, but he has no idea about Xenu and the schizophrenia and multiple personality that's going to be induced in him if he goes up to the, all the way to the confidential levels. That's what Scientology is. It's a mind control machine and it's a trap. Yeah, we get all kinds of attacks every week. Doug, last week we had uh, Stella on Julian Assange's wife and they tried to take our entire mm. internet down so we couldn't broadcast that one. Wow. The internet providers confirmed these things with some emails. All right, so um, Easy E is put in a super chat. We'll get back to what you were saying in a minute, but let's just let's just see if we can address this. Does Doug know that Jack Parsons, devil worshiper, pre-NASA engineer, 
did rituals and curses on Hubbard because he stole his missus. Is Scientology mirroring or does it have devil worshipping undertones? Rather than use the S word, let's let's use devil sure. worship. <laughs> sure. In regards to the S word, if people want to know more about that, I just put out several videos about that particular topic. I'll be going more into that. But to answer that guy's questions, yeah. Real briefly, um, Jack Parsons died in a mysterious uh, death. He was a famous rocket scientist slash occultist. And in the mid-40s, he was renting out this house in Pasadena, California, where he was performing uh, occult rituals. And he wanted people, he would only rent out his house to people that were kind of in the eclectic hippie movement slash occult slash S, the S word. And so Hubbard just happened to go there and he became his right-hand man in his black magic rituals. And they did something called the Babylon working um, to create the moon child. There was a gal named Marjorie Cameron that ended up showing up at his door and they assumed that this was the girl to impregnate to create this demon child called the moon child. So there's a whole bunch of information about that. But to keep a long story short, Hubbard then stole Jack's girlfriend, stole his money that he promised was going to be in a joint business venture, went onto a ship and sailed out uh, into the ocean. And freaking Jack Parsons followed him, did a banishing ritual or some ritual, some black magic ritual on the shore, which actually did cause the winds to go up. Hubbard got sucked back um, to shore, so he couldn't take off with his girlfriend. And Parsons ended up suing him um, for the business venture. And I believe he got his money back on that. But Hubbard was, um, by the way, Crowley wrote to Hubbard, uh, Crowley wrote to um, Parsons when he met Hubbard and Crowley was in communication um, with Parsons about this ritual. And Crowley says, Jack, what are you doing, dude? Like, um, this guy's a confidence. He's pulling a confidence trick on you. He's a con artist. Be careful. And he called them louts, meaning what are these idiots doing attempting this? Um, it's that moon child, that Babylon working is kind of a, a big ritual to do if you believe in this black magic stuff. And uh, they certainly did. Wow. All right. So this question now ties in with like the likes of, you know, Tom Cruise, John Travolta, these big names. Serious question. This is from Dancing Queen. Are normal working class people into Scientology, as I only ever hear of rich people giving huge amounts of money into it? It's both. If you don't have a lot of money, um, I think we covered this briefly on the previous interview. If you don't have a lot of money, they want to take anybody, but they weed people out through what's called a personality test and other tests. But they want everybody. Hal Ron Hubbard was a great salesman and he appealed to everyone. So if you don't have money, they try to get you on staff. That might be signing a two and a half or five year contract when they had missions back in the day. But nowadays they mostly have what's called orgs or organizations. These are the big buildings that David Miscavige, the current cult leader is pushing. And so if you don't have money, they will have you sign a billion year contract so that you can work for Scientology and its mission in this to save this sector of the universe. And not only this lifetime, but for a, however many a billion years is. Um, I know that sounds crazy. It's sort of metaphoric. What they're trying to do is, you know, get the idea across. It's this serious mission. Nobody really takes it seriously, but people always cackle at the billionaire contract and they do get people to sign it. That's the staff. If you don't have any money, they often get people from that are looking for a visa or they'll bring them overseas, you know, and con them into, um, hey, it's a great job. You know, you'll be saving the planet and all this. And they sign this contract and their parents never see them again. 
Now, if you do, it is a rich man's cult and a white rich man's cult. L. Ron Hubbard was super homophobic, racist, every ist you can add, right? So they have very few black people in, although they did align with the nation of Islam uh, with Louis Farrakhan, which is a kind of a, a whole nother topic. But they, it's a rich white man's cult. And yeah, you have to have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to move up to the top of that bridge. OTA, which is where my dad got, the minimum to get to that is about a million dollars. So would Cruz and Travolta then, would they have to kick in money of that magnitude to go up the ladder or would they just be fast-tracked because of the celebrity status? Great question. Um, they would be fast-tracked, which kind of blew my mind because everything in Scientology is done exactly per the policies of Hubbard and you do it standardly and you do have to go up the initiation levels and that takes X amount of time. But they fast-tracked Nicole Kidman. She was... Um, she got up to OT3, I believe. And even though she was never a hardcore Scientologist and just kind of did it because her husband Tom was in it, she was fast-tracked up those OT levels and the bridge in general. She went up very quickly. So yeah, if you're a celebrity, they do all sorts of tricks that I was oblivious of. And most of the Scientologists are because when we're in that cult, we firmly believe we're following the policies of Hubbard and it says to do it in an exact way. And it takes forever and a lot of work uh, to get up to those confidential levels. And the level right. in general. All right. So before those questions came in, we were talking about you getting out. Let me ask you this then, because sometimes people mm -hmm. say to me, Sean, you know, is there anything you miss about prison? And I say, actually, there are a few little things, you know, the camaraderie, right. the friends I made. You got out of Scientology, but are there things that you were, you missed like immediately, immediately coming out and to this day? Definitely. Exactly what you just said about prison. Even to this day, there's a high that you have when you have a group purpose like that. It's never going to be replaced. That's a, the kind of the amazing thing about a cult. There's something about everybody being on the same page. And also we're under a lot of pressure, especially if you're on staff, you're under tremendous pressure to make things happen. So things can happen. And when you, you know, I'd imagine it's being like in the military with your military buddies, right? There's a bonding. There's a kind of a camaraderie that doesn't happen in the everyday world. I miss that massively. I've gotten over that quite a bit because I have a new life now and I have, you know, friends and stuff, but man, I do. I miss my friends that are stuck in there. I just saw a, uh, a video yesterday on a guy, by the way, a C-level actor named David O'Donnell, who's a Scientologist. This is a guy that I just cursorily knew around the organization. And there he is, uh, shilling for Scientology, trying to help out in Hurricane Ian out in Florida. Scientology has these things called volunteer ministers, where anytime there's a disaster, 9-11 hurricanes, they send their shills out in their um, yellow vests. And anyway, so there I see him in 2022, man, still in there. I see my buddies once in a while pop up in these videos going, how can you still be in this? So to me, it's just, it's another world. It's another lifetime ago that I was in that. And once in a while I get triggered and do, I miss these freaking people. And I miss my parents, man. I mean, my parents are unrecoverable. People always weep and say, I hope they come out. It's not going to happen. Um, it's a long story, but you can get in too deep. But I miss the family. I miss the camaraderie. And like I said, the electricity of the group cause is ir irreplaceable in what Scientology would call the WOG world. Yeah, I so, hate to use that word, by the way. So, so when you get out then, are you completely ostracized? I mean, the friends that you made, that you bonded with, would they be able to, on the down low, 
send you an email and say, hey, Doug, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in here, you know, obviously I can't come out and meet you and blah, 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 but just want to check in, see if you're okay, how are you doing, man? It was, you know, it was, it was great, you know, while you're in here, the fun we had. Did, did, can anything like that happen or is it like a, a, a great wall that's blocking all this stuff? I've been hoping that would happen. I've been doing a YouTube channel. Well, I've been doing it for two and a half years now. And I thought that one person would do what you just said. But, you know, this is what I think, Sean. I think it actually, here's the thing. When I was in Scientology, you'd never click on a channel like mine. You just don't. You know, anybody that's saying anything negative about Scientology either doesn't understand it or they're what Scientology calls a suppressive person. A human translation would be they're a sociopath. They have, they're evil. So nobody goes against Scientology that, you know, doesn't have evil intentions. But I suspect one or two have Scientologists that I'll never know about actually have seen and, and been deprogramming from these videos. I mean, if any, if any Scientologists did, I really, really wonder if my parents have actually seen any of these videos. Um, I always wonder, I'd love to hear from one person to see what it would do because all the information is there. But but Sean, we are programmed. I mean, we are programmed where you're wrong if you say anything negative about Scientology. And the way I would look at people like that was pretty scary. So they, would, would those people then be terrified to reach out to you? Are they being surveyed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would. They have to get to a certain stage like I did because I was terrified for years when other shows were coming out. We had Going Clear that came out in 2015, which greatly helped pop the bubble on what Scientology was. Oh, they're not just a wacky UFO cult. They're a mafia criminal organization. Then we had Leah Remedy's award-winning series come out in 2017, which was called Scientology in the Aftermath. And, and many other people before that, which laid the groundwork where it's not as scary, but until you get enough distance, deprogram, maybe you have to handle, is your family in it? Are they not? There's a whole series of things that a person would have to go through to not feel scared of talks. Many, many people simply go under the radar they try to keep their family so they don't maybe have to do scientology according to their family they just have to shut up about it and not say anything negative my situation was different because <clears throat> i swear sean <clears throat> as soon as i read that book and i found out that l ron harvard who i base my life around this guy i absolutely believe was the most honest greatest i know it's gonna sound stupid to your audience and believe me it sounds stupid now but i'm just telling you we we and i believe that this man had the answers and was the most ethical honest person so when i read this book and found out he lied that he was a liar that lit a fire under my ass where i didn't care if i lost my family i didn't care if i got killed i didn't care i went homeless for a while i went through a whole it was hard but i didn't give a crap because I, I, there's no way i was going to compromise go under the radar, be quiet. I tried to rescue my family. I bombarded them with phone calls. I cried on the phone. I got angry at them. I threatened their life. I did everything to try to wake my parents up. And that was a mistake too, because I was just doing the same thing that they were doing to me. I, I was needed them to not be a Scientologist for me to be happy with my life and continue. And they needed me to be a Scientologist for their life to fit. So I figure if I'm just going to try to wake them up and beat them over the head, they have every right to be a Scientologist and they take the consequences of that choice, just like I take the consequences of my choice. So it took me a long time. And this is where you asked earlier, are people afraid to talk out? Do they come forward? Um, I think if you can get to that point where you can really do a lot of soul searching and get yourself in a safe environment, 
And I do think that eventually people will feel compelled to say it. I've been healing massively and I couldn't be quiet about this, but yeah, sorry for the long story, but a lot of people are scared and under the radar to talk out because of the, of the cult. No, we love long answers on this channel. That's great. Thank you. Oh, okay. So sure. I've got even further questions on this subject though. So you said your parents then, I mean, to be separated from your friends is one thing from your fresh flesh and blood is another. Did you have siblings or any other family members? Yeah, man. Um, I haven't thought about her for a long time, but I, I do. My parents are a little, my parents might, I hate to say this, but they might be sociopaths on top of being Scientologists. So whether or not I'd have a relationship with them, even if they did happen to wake up, I doubt it. But my sister's not. She's a great person and I miss her the most. I had a conversation with her once. Whew, the last time that I talked to her where I was maybe year eight or nine getting out, and I went to her house because I was homeless, man. I was living in my car for a long time and I needed help. I was just, I needed help the most. And my sister had to turn me away and it turned into kind of fight and me bawling. And it, that was the last time I saw her, but it was basically, sis, can you recognize the problem that Scientology has created in our family? Could you kind of join my side and help me out? Cause I'm, I'm dying here. I'm, I'm, I'm starving. I'm death. I'm, I'm desperate. I need somebody in the family that understands this. So she kind of turned her back on me. I understand this um, because she's not full on a Scientologist, but they make sure that she does enough auditing that her grandkids are getting into Scientology. I couldn't watch Scientology get to my grandkids. I couldn't warn my sister. I think she knows what's going on for her to go the route that I would, would mean losing my family support. And she needs that. So she wasn't willing to kind of, um, such a freaking sad story, man, because I love my sister, man, but she she made the wrong decision. Man, yeah. that is absolutely heartrending. Um, so do you like hold hope of future communication with her? Yeah, I do. I think once my parents pass, uh, that we will actually uh, reconnect. I can't even in my wildest dreams imagine what that moment would be like. She only lives an hour away. Wow. You know, I live in Los Angeles. She, I, I haven't seen him. I, you know, I don't contact him. My sis hasn't reached out and I don't hold a grudge against her at all. So whenever that time is right, I totally understand her position. So whenever that time is right and my parents, uh, you know, pass, I think that we will be able to reconnect with them out of the picture, that man Scientology out of the picture. At that point, would there be a discussion about her getting out? I don't, here's, she has such an interesting story, Sean. First of all, in my family lineage, my, um, my grandmother is a Christian scientist. My parents are Scientologists. So they'd always fight about those. There's both cults. So they'd always fight about those cults. My sister was a Scientologist, but then escaped. She kind of made a, a subconscious escape from the family to get away from them in Scientology. But she married a very psychopathic man who caused her to join the Mormon church. So she escaped to New Mexico, got caught in the Mormon church. My family was always trying to get her back so they could get her back into Scientology and away from the Mormons and these freaks. So there's battlings between Christian scientists, Mormons, Scientologists, and then there's the Freemasons too. Uh, you know, my grandfather was in the Freemasons. He was, um, I got a hand-me-down. Uh, for my 21st birthday, a Freemasonic ring while I was a Scientologist. So it's just like cult cult fighting going in my family. And by <laughs> the way, Sean, what I, what I extracted myself from all this, it's the greatest, there's a lot of pain or whatever, but I'm telling you, it's the best choice I ever made because they're living in that world fighting each other and I'm just 
not a part of any of it. It, the, the, it was worth it to get away from not just Scientology, but the family dynamics of my family, which is kind of cult-like too. That is absolutely insane. Just when you think it couldn't go next level, it's just yeah, nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now we're going to go to another level because Ash has sent something here to me saying uh, there is a level called OT3, final level before beginning to wake up, exit the cult. And this gets us to the alien level. Yes. That is the final level, as if it couldn't get any crazier. <laughs> I'll try to explain this uh, succinctly. Hopefully I won't ramble. But yeah, that's the level. Those Now you get... So what you do real quick, Sean, is they suck you with the communication course like we talked about last time. And then you go up what's called grades. Grade zero, one, two, three, four. And then they have a state called clear where you no longer have the things in your subconscious mind that are holding you back. Now, finally, you get onto the confidential or OT levels. Again, that stands for operating Thetan. A Thetan is a spiritual being, so operating is a spiritual being. This is where you're going to learn how to undo the amnesia from all your past lifetimes. This is where you're going to remember who you are. This is where you're going to undo what they call the whole track trauma. That means all the things that happened in your past life that you're not aware of. So you think it's tools for life. It's, it's just helping you out in your family and your environment, going up the grades, even up to clear. And then all of a sudden, this is where they hit you with the Xenu story. And everybody thinks that Scientologists know this Xenu story, but only 5% of the people get up there. So most Scientologists don't, they, you, do, you do have a lot of space opera indoctrination because you listen to L. Ron Hubbard lectures about his space opera experience. So it's not totally withheld, but the Xenu and the alien thing is a total secret. And it's been exposed massively since then. But until then, it was like, once you become clear between then and achieving OT3, which is where you're hit with Xenu and the aliens and everything, you're said to be in danger because that part of your subconscious is now available. So you better hurry up and get up to OT3. So once I became clear, um, I went, I just covered this on my channel about all the BS they put you through to get up there. And then finally I get onto that. My parents are super excited, you know, my dad is because I'm finally going to know the secret that he does. And by the way, parishioners can't talk about it amongst each other or else you get fined a hundred thousand dollars for each infraction. So me and my dad couldn't talk about it when I finally learned the secret, but we'd wink, wink and look at each other like, Ooh, dude, we know <laughs> it's all seems so silly now, but it was really serious. Sean, I'd walk in order to get the materials, by the way, what they do real briefly is you do something called solo auditing, which is where you grab the materials. Um, I'd go down to my local organization in LA. I would have a lock briefcase on me and they have a person come over and make sure you're all secure at your house and have locks and everything. You can't show this to anybody. So I'd grab the materials in a lock briefcase, put them on me, go back to my house, go into my room, lock the room, and then I could unlock it and audit the materials. Um, it's too much to get into here as to what goes on, but that's the first time you, you're hit with the aliens and it's, and it's, it's um, Xenu is the galactic overlord that caused all this. And then the main thing that we're auditing is we're getting off spiritual beings that are attached to all human beings from the moment they incarnate called body thetans. So I spend hours on end telepathically communicating with these beings on my body using their e-meter and making them go away through a series of processes. And all the rest of the bridge is that same thing, more and more body thetans. On OT3, it's the body thetans that you're consciously aware of. Now, on o and then you're told that's it. There's something brand new on OT4, but it's not. 
Now you have to deal with body thetans that were on drugs that you couldn't access before. And then on OT5, you have to deal with body thetans that were pretending like they were a doorknob or some part of the physical unit. It just, it's wild, but I'm just saying it's all Xenu and body thetans and the confidential levels, but everything below that and why that commenter might've think Scientology is so good. You're not hit with any, hardly any of that lunatic asylum stuff. But wow. that's where it all leads. That's where wow. it all leads. <laughs> this is absolutely mind-blowing. And there's just so many questions coming for you, Doug. And we're about to run out of time for this section. But there sure. is a Q&A coming up in 30 minutes with you, I believe. Sure, I'll be here. So viewers, please, uh, you know, just stand by for the Q&A coming up in 30 minutes. And all the stuff I was going to talk about, we've only scratched the surface. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to, you know, you, you've been so generous with your time tonight. I'm going to see if Ash... Can perhaps, can perhaps get you back here in the near future because um, the, the, the sure, viewers anytime. are just fascinated by this. And Doug, before we just sign off of this section, can you tell the viewers where they can find your channel, what it's called and where you are on socials? Sure. Um, the main thing is just the YouTube channel. It's called Days But Not Confused and Confused is spelled with a Z. And they can find in the description box other socials, email, etc. All right, cheers, brother. And Doug will be Thanks, back man. in 30 minutes. So stand by for more and get your questions ready. And thank you, all the viewers, for putting questions in as well. Cheers, Doug. Thanks, Sean. Have a good one. All right, bye. All right. Now, earlier on, I put down a survey of people asking if they were familiar with the Alaska Triangle. Two-thirds of the viewers were not familiar with the Alaska Triangle. And we're about to speak to an expert on it. Mike is going to share his theories about what's happening. Because since 1988, 16,000 people have gone missing in the Alaska Triangle. That is a hell of a lot of people. So let's bring Mike in. Here we go. Hey, Mike, how's it going, man? I'm going pretty well, Sean. How are you doing today? Yeah, great. Where in the world are you? I'm in the Cleveland, Ohio area here in the States. Okay, fantastic. Can you just tell the viewers, huge thank you for coming on. Can you just tell the viewers a little bit about what got you onto this subject? Because I've never heard of it. I'm so excited, you know, to, to find out about it and to hear your theories. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of strange activity that happens up there. But, you know, my time in Alaska goes back into the, uh, the early 90s, 1992, 1995, when I was a member of the United States Air Force and I was stationed up there for, for three years. I did experience some strange activity while I was there. Uh, a couple of my children were born up there and uh, really kind of came back around here uh, some years back when uh, they were looking for some people for the Alaska Triangle television show. And uh, the, uh, the production company had come across one of my videos on my, uh, YouTube channel, Hunter Road Media, where I was talking about, you know, portals and supernatural and paranormal activity and that sort of thing. And so they reached out to me and, you know, we got into some discussions. They flew me up there and, uh, interviewed me on the side of Flat Top Mountain outside of Anchorage. And, you know, it's kind of snowballed since then, you know, it's kind of inspired me since I'm a writer anyway, to go ahead and, and follow up some more on that and actually produce a book talking about all the strange phenomena that happens up there. So throughout your life, then, have you noticed strange phenomena just through your career? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's something that goes back uh, for me personally, ever since I was a small child where I had experienced um, some 
what you would call supernatural paranormal activity. Uh, when I was about eight years old, again, when I was 13, a couple of different houses that uh, that I had lived in. And so that's something that's always been an interest of mine. And uh, over the last 15 years has been the primary focus of most of my books. And what particular paranormal phenomenon did you experience at such a young age then? Because that's interesting, isn't it? I've not... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Th this was shadow person phenomenon. The uh, the very first experience that I had when I was eight years old, I woke up in the middle of the night, tall, dark shadow standing in the corner of my bedroom. Uh, I thought I thought there was an intruder in the house. You know that I'm not immediately going to shadow person or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I thought somebody had broken into the home, and but it did get physical with me. It you know, approached my bed, uh, grabbed me by the wrist, crossed my arms across my body, and then ran off down the hall. When I was 13, we had moved to the other house. It was also shadow activity, but very, very different. Um, at the new house, it was recurring activity. That At the first house was just one particular incident, where at the new house, it was just this recurring figure that would stand in the doorway, I was unpacking boxes, putting things away. My mother had seen this thing too. And it was activity that went on for about three or four months. I ended up getting playful with the thing and calling him Tom, like peeping Tom, because he'd look in the doorway and say, hi, Tom, and he'd, he'd take off. So well, it's kind of the basis of my book, A Walk in the Shadows, a complete guide to shadow people. Do you think because it was reoccurring, some kinds of entity had attached itself to you? Well, what I thought, because it was different than that first one. Uh, that first one was very solid, had mass. Um, you could really distinctly see a figure where that second one was more translucent. You could sort of see a, a figure. Uh, the first one was interactive. The second one would just always run off. Uh, so really two different figures. And that second one, what I chalked it up to was uh, you know, something that was there at the home checking out the new family that was moving in, deemed that we are all right, and just kind of went about its its business. Right, okay. Have you come across any vortices or portals? Well, yeah, and we we're talking something about uh, the Alaska Triangle. That's definitely uh, an area that has uh, vortices, portals. I've been to locations that have reported portal activity. Uh, it's uh, when I uh, produced my docu-series, The Shadow Dimension, not only were we seeking out uh, the shadow activity, but also locations that had reported the portal activity as well to see if there was a correlation between the two. But uh, yeah, when we're talking uh, the Alaska Triangle, we're talking about uh, that, you know, that vortex energy, that magnetic activity that is, you know, rising up out of the Earth's core, which is, I mean, we're, we're talking about spinning molten iron. So it produces a magnetic field. And as it passes through the Earth's mantle and crust, it's interacting with different metals and minerals, water uh, at some points. And depending on what it interacts with, it produces these different magnetic fields. And it's those magnetic fields that can spawn off things like portals and create other activity. So, okay, so you describe portal activity, but I imagine many mm -hmm. of the viewers are not familiar with this language. So what would sure. qualify for portal activity specifically? What, what phenomenon would you observe? Sure. I mean, when we're talking about a portal, we're talking about some sort of gateway from uh, whether it's 
you know, if we're like talking about a Stargate type of portal, that would be from one point in the cosmos to another. Uh, if we're talking something more interdimensional, it would be from, you know, our plane of existence to another. You know, there's also, you know, time portals where, uh, like a great example, Bruce Gernon in the Bermuda Triangle, uh, he had experienced uh, what he called a electronic fog that basically, you know, through the clouds, uh, welled up like a tunnel. And as he went through, he basically uh, got pushed ahead about 100 miles in, in three minutes, uh, which is, you know, his plane, his little, you know, Cessna airplane was not going to fly that fast. So somehow he got propelled forward in, in time, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. That's terrifying as well. Yeah. Rebe <laughs> Rebecca wants to know, are portals permanent or temporary? They seem to be temporary that, um, you know, they, they kind of uh, open and close. Actually, outside of the Earth, they have NASA, uh, and you can, you can look this up on their website, that they have detected a portal outside of our planet. And they call these X points, where basically our uh, magnetic sphere is interacting with the solar wind and creates these portals that open and close. So here on Earth, portals that are opening or closing, the, the question becomes, you know, what's the catalyst? What is all of a sudden making this thing just suddenly open and, of course, you know, subsequently close? Question from Anexus. Are you aware of a huge underground pyramid in Alaska? Yeah, there's the uh, the blast pyramid that they talk about in Alaska. Uh, it's a really interesting story. So this was um, rumored to be discovered in the early 1990s, actually while I was stationed up there. Uh, and you know, what had happened was China was doing some nuclear testing, and our seismologists here in the States were measuring the shock waves. And when those shock waves passed through Alaska, they recognized some sort of pyramidal structure. Uh, within Alaska. And so the individual who tried to follow up on this, because this was a story that aired on the news in Channel 13 in Anchorage, uh, when he tried to follow up on that, uh, he went to the station, was asking about the story, and they claimed that they had never actually aired the story, you know, that they completely denied it. And as he was walking out, there was a junior staffer that pulled him aside and said, well, actually we did, but there were some men who showed up earlier today and confiscated the tapes. Steffi Sunshine has asked, are Stargates real? What is a Stargate? Yeah, I do believe Stargates are, are real. Uh, we see a lot of this type of iconography in ancient Egypt, which going back to here in, in February, if people want to join the tour. Uh, and yeah, so with a Stargate, again, this is a, uh, a place somewhere in the cosmos that will take you to uh, another point somewhere in the universe. And, uh, you know, we, we go to the theory of the Einstein-Rosen bridge, Albert Einstein, Nathan Rosen. And what their idea is that you take two points within space using our Newtonian physics, we can't get from one to the other you know, within our lifespan. So how do we get from one to the other? Well, if you could bend space and time, and that's the trick, how do you bend space and time, then you could bring those two points together and travel from one to other through what you'd call a wormhole, but on either end of those uh, wormholes would be some sort of portal or stargate that we'd use to access. Wow. All right, so with the Alaska Triangle then, when did the airplanes and people start to go missing? 
Uh, really ever since uh, flight was invented, when people started flying airplanes up there. Uh, but some of the more notorious ones, uh, you know, 1972, uh, Hale Boggs, who was uh, the House Majority Leader at the time, and Representative Nick Begich, along with a couple of others on the airplane, uh, they completely went missing, uh, flying from Anchorage to Juneau, somewhere in the Portage Pass. Uh, their airplane disappeared. It was the largest search and rescue mission in U.S. history to that point. Uh, you know, thousands of people were mobilized. They were using spy planes to try uh, to try to find the aircraft. And to this day, not a single uh, shred of that plane has ever been found. Another uh, interesting one from 1950. It was a uh, it was a Douglas Skymaster flying from Elmendorf Air Force Base uh, down to uh, Montana, and somewhere across the border from Alaska into Canada near Snag, they completely lost contact. This is a very very large airplane. Again, you know, mobilizing thousands of of people. Uh, there were U.S. and Canadian troops that were uh, running joint exercises at the time, so they pulled a lot of people off of, of those to go search. Plenty of aircraft were used to try to find um, you know, this large airplane with its 44 personnel. Nothing was ever found, still nothing. And what's uh, kind of ironic is that just shortly after, uh, a few weeks after, there was a smaller plane that went down in that area that they were able to find immediately, but this big Douglas Skymaster not at all. So some people believe uh, that it may have passed through a portal, uh, that you know they may have ended up in some other point, maybe some other dimension, some other point in time. And I always hearken back to the Thunderbird stories. If it did go back in time, perhaps this is what the indigenous peoples were seeing, where these large aircraft coming through you know, some sort of portal. Uh, or some people believe it was UFO act, uh, activity, because just before and just after this plane went missing, People have been reporting UFOs in the area. Wow. And there's a lot of theories, isn't there, about the aircraft that had baggage on it. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. and Because I've even heard of this uh, a long time ago, that the, the, the mafia were involved or the CIA were involved and there was certain military or political information possessed by the passengers. And have, have you looked at the various theories? Yeah, absolutely. In, in my book, I have a, uh, a section on conspiracy theories. And with, with Hale Boggs, he had dissented against the Warren Commission, which uh, investigated the JFK assassination. And so, um, you know, he was he was in opposition to their findings. So he had some you know, many political enemies. And there's an interesting report that came out some years back. Uh, there was a an, an individual in the Anchorage, Alaska area that was getting older and he was just he started fessing up to a lot of these crimes to the, uh, the Anchorage law enforcement there. And one of them that he had mentioned uh, was that he had been hired to uh, take a package and put it on the Boggs baggage plane. No questions asked, just you're getting paid, put this package on the plane. Years later, he was told that that package actually held an explosive. Now, there's been, again, no wreckage, no you know, shards of an airplane or anything found within the, the search area. So it's hard to confirm that. So the law enforcement, and this, of course, you know, got pushed to uh, the, the FBI. Uh, they decided not to, to follow up on that because, again, not a, not a piece of the plane has been found to, to be able to follow up with the investigation. Wow. What about shipwrecks and ghost ships then? 
Yeah, there's some uh, you know very sad tales when it comes to uh, shipwrecks there in Alaska, and uh, the most prolific would be the SS Princess Sophia, which they refer to as the Alaskan Titanic. It, uh, it went down October uh, 1918, so six years after the Titanic. And you know, everybody aboard perished. The only survivor was, uh, was a dog that had managed to swim to shore, covered in oil. And what's, uh, what's really interesting about this particular case is that the captain of the ship uh, had routinely you know, up and down the coast, made this trip from Skagway to Juneau uh, down to Vancouver. And this was really the last run for the year. And he knew exactly where, you know, to position the ship because he had he'd, uh, made this trip so many times. And yet they ended up right in the middle on top of Vanderbilt Reef. So the question is, okay, what happened? Well, as they had set sail, a blizzard had kicked up. So they had zero visibility. They couldn't see anything. So, of course, that's going to, uh, you know, hurt their chances trying to make this trip. But, okay, so at that point, they're relying on navigational equipment, compasses, things like this. He knows how to use this equipment. The crew knows how to use this equipment. And yet, somehow, misnavigates into the center of the canal. So, this is where it's believed that, you know, the triangle had, you know, reared its ugly head and uh, interfered with the navigational equipment. Because we've seen things like this down in uh, Bermuda as well with, with, flight 19 where they had made the first leg of that journey everything was completely fine as they turned north their navigational equipment started going awry compasses started uh, malfunctioning and then all of a sudden a massive storm kicked up so this is a common theme that we see with these triangle areas that uh, navigational equipment anything that's like uh, you know, that uses some sort of magnetism uh, you know guidance systems things like that uh, will su will suddenly malfunction and then a storm kicks up. So, of all of these cases, then within the triangle, which one has been the most jaw dropping for you? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, Princess Sophia is certainly one of them. Uh, the the Douglas Skymaster with the different theories uh, behind that. To, but to me, you know, the the Boggs baggage disappearance is you know just you know, mind boggling. That okay, you know, here we have a very very prolific individual on Boggs. And, you know, Begich is you know, um, no slacker either. I mean, he was a little bit further, you know, down the, the, the chart there. But still, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a popular congressman there in Alaska. And for them to completely go missing, nothing ever found is, is really troubling. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to look into that some more because I have been fascinated by that one for years. All right. So Ray J., has asked does the diminishing global magnetic field strength mean an increase in portals due to solar wind effects increase yeah that's a great question because uh, when you look at you know some place like the alaska triangle that is one of the things that's affecting the area uh, at the poles you have a thinner magnetic shield uh, that's why we get things like the aurora borealis there in alaska um, and in that particular area there uh, you have Sure, the magnetism, which has actually been measured by the U.S. Department of the Interior, that they've actually defined areas of uh, negative magnetic anomalies there in Alaska. You have the solar winds that are beating down on the area. Uh, you have volcanic activity there uh, with its energy and then also seismic activity. You know, the largest earthquake uh, ever measured in North America took place uh, just outside of Anchorage in the 1960s. So 
you have all of these different energies there in Alaska that are creating this massive uh, cocktail for uh, all these different things to happen. But uh, yeah, actually, as we see, you know, thinning magnetism or with something like a, a pole shift, which they keep uh, predicting is going to happen again soon, we will see things like hap like that happen. 40,000 years ago, when we had what they believe was our last pole shift, uh, they believe that our magnetic protection at that time was reduced to about 6%. So if you can imagine the peoples at that time, um, this, this may be why we have a lot of cave art that dates to, around to that period of time that people were hiding in caves uh, and, and you know, having to kind of flee for their lives. And what were they seeing in the air? You know, these uh, you know, crazy auroras and things like that. That could be where some of these legends of the gods came from. When's the next one then, Mike? Uh, the pole shift. Well, we don't know. You, you know, it's it's something you can't really predict. But the pole is is moving. Uh, it's moving in a northwesterly direction, uh, really kind of towards Alaska, and then if it keeps moving beyond towards Siberia. But uh, right now, it's actually in Canada. The the magnetic pole. Justin wants to know: Does the Bermuda, Alaskan, and other triangles all act the same, and is there any link with each other? So they have a lot of uh, similar properties. You know, when we talk about you know the way the magnetism works in the area, the different types of uh, you know, tragedies that happen in the area, missing airplanes, missing people. Um, people see you know whether it's sea monsters or they see you know cryptids in Alaska, uh, paranormal, supernatural activity. So you have a lot of uh, you know similar type of activity that happens in the area. Now. As far as connections, uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, when he uh, came out with his theory about the vile vortices back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, he drew a connection to each of these types of areas, you know, Bermuda, the Dragon Triangle out in uh, around Japan and some other areas. And what's interesting is if you actually draw lines from uh, one to the other through the globe, you end up with essentially a 20-sided polygon, which is absolutely fascinating when you start uh, getting into uh, things like sacred geometry. Wow, that is, that's, that's mental. Do, does, um, do you ever study supervolcanoes? I haven't done a lot of work with supervolcanoes. Now, there is an ancient caldera there in Alaska, and that, that ring of volcanoes there in the Aleutians is extremely active. And so, um, you know, I've, I've presented that within my work, but it's not a, a significant area of my study. So I lived in Arizona for 16, 17 years, and the things you see in the sky, the, it's so clear, the stars are shooting stars and unidentified phenomenon. What about UFOs, extraterrestrials, aliens, sightings, anything there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I kind of already mentioned the uh, the UFOs on the either side of the uh, missing Douglas, uh, that disappearance. But uh, yeah, people do report a lot of significant UFO activity in Alaska. One of really the most significant one was the Japanese Airlines flight in 1986. And this made it all the way. I mean, this was this was national news. Uh, Reagan's scientific team got involved. The CIA got involved. The CIA really put the kibosh on it. Um, but it was a significant enough event where uh, you had this UFO that was uh, basically shadowing this uh, Japanese uh, airline 
cargo plane. There was a United flight that also got into the mix with this. You had the uh, the banter and the chatter between uh, you know, the, the military and then uh, air traffic control in Anchorage. And they had all of this material. The, the FCC, uh, John Callahan, uh, did a really fantastic job of compiling all of this information together. Uh, and the Reagan scientific team really, really wanted more information. They were really, really interested in the CIA basically said, nope, we're not going to talk about this. There's, we're going to say that there's not enough material to go on <laughs> when it was all there. So is that conversation available online to listen to? Um, you can find information. I don't know if the actual, um, I, I don't think the actual audio piece is available, but you can, uh, you can definitely find the transcripts. Oh, we got to try and get get that audio. That would be imagine broadcasting that audio. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So unusual creatures of the north. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, you know a lot of people report seeing Sasquatch uh, up there in Alaska. Of course, you know we we hear about that uh, all throughout North America, the Sasquatch. But uh, they also have one called Hairy Man, which is kind of a related individual. Uh, but there's the Lake Iliamna. Uh, monster which is kind of like the loch ness monster uh, but they're in alaska which may be uh if it really exists some sort of plesiosaur it's also another one called the uh the kushtaka which is related to the wendigo legends uh kind of around from around the great lakes area which is a uh you know a type of creature that uh, kind of lures people out into the woods and will either one devour you or two will turn you into another Kushtaka, which is again very similar to the Wendigo legends. You know, and then you have you know Thunderbird legends, which I you know kind of mentioned before. So there's yeah a number of different uh, things, and then there's you know the giants, uh, you know the giant bones that they have found up there, and you find a lot of giant stories within the Native Alaskan and Inuit lore. And what I have found fascinating in that research is uh, you know they talk about the giants coming you know over from Siberia uh, and you know, mating with the uh, native Alaskans there. And really when you actually look at the terminology that's used within the stories, it sounds a lot like the, the old Nephilim stories. And it makes you wonder, how did the Nephilim stories get up here in Alaska? It's really fascinating. Steffi has asked whether you think the Phoenix lights were real aliens or a military thing. <laughs> that's a tough question. Okay. Um, because they could be either or, or they could even just be, you know, some sort of plasma effect. Um, you know, you, you know, something like uh, like earthquake lights, where you see, you know, these different plasma events just before an earthquake happens. So it's, you know, is it natural? Is it UFOs? Is it military? I'm I'm kind of mixed. You know, there are, there are great cases to make, be made for each. Paul's asked, why are UFOs such a big thing in the States? But they're worldwide, aren't they, UFOs, surely? Yeah. Yeah, you, you see a lot of that uh, activity worldwide. I mean, in, in the UK, Australia, um, Egypt, uh, Jerusalem had the, uh, the UFO sightings there. So, uh, yeah, you see, you see those all over. So sasquatch do you think that is a phenomenon of portals or that they may live underground that's from the psychedelic fish you know there's a lot of people have been speculating now is it some sort of paranormal supernatural creatures is it some sort of interdimensional being is it a, uh, an extraterrestrial um you know there are some great cases to be made for all of these different things you know when we go back to looking at the missing persons cases you know people you know people that are actually found you know, some of them actually do get found <laughs> um 
that you know, people will say, well, you know, I heard a noise off the side of the path and I took two steps off the path and couldn't find what I was looking for, whatever was making the noise, turned back around and all of a sudden the path was gone. So it was, it's almost like they, you know, got teleported to either somewhere into the forest or another point in time or this sort of thing. So that does make you wonder then about uh, Sasquatch and other creatures that are reported out there uh, in, in these forests. You know, are they using perhaps some sort of, you know, portal or teleportation uh, methodology to be able to move from one point to another interdimensionally or just, you know, across the forest? Easy E is wondering whether there is any truth in a Nazi station being up there and a large battle post World War Two, where the Allied forces got a bloody lip and retreated? Um, where at? In Alaska? Yeah, Alaska. He's, he's asking if there was an... Antarctica. Was Antarctica, okay. Yeah, Antarctica had the, the Nazi bases there. I mean, there are, there are photos... Uh, on that that you can find out there. The question is, what were they actually looking for down there? And I have a lot of theories about what, what's going on in Antarctica, because uh, you're actually seeing, so this is fascinating, you're talking about, uh, you know, portals and vortices and things like that. So down in Antarctica, uh, with the Anita Project and the Ice Cube Project, they have, uh, in their scientific tests, they have detected neutrinos that are basically, you know, running backwards out of the Earth. They're expecting them coming from space, but they're actually running out of the Earth's so so they've come to this idea, and these are scientists, this is a peer-reviewed scientific paper, that uh, they may have detected the first signs of a uh, parallel universe running in reverse time. So if things like, crazy things like this are going on down in Antarctica, and also, you know, underneath that ice, you might be able to find ancient civilizations. Are it, is there some sort of technology down there that, you know, the, the Nazis were looking for? And I believe that may be the case. A parallel universe running in reverse time. My head is yes. still trying to comprehend that. It's, it's, it's about to explode. <laughs> yeah, what would that it's look like? To... I, know. I know. Wow. This has been absolutely amazing. I think we've got time for one or two more questions if anyone's got anything. Here we go. Benny, what do you think of animal mutilation? We had a guest on that talked about that. He's got his channel that specializes in it. Yeah, huge mystery. And you see a lot of that um, You know, at Skinwalker Ranch. You know, is that some sort of, you know, are, you know, are the extraterrestrials doing that? It's kind of been the big speculation ever since people started reporting the, uh, the cattle mutilations and things like that. Uh, the place like Skinwalker Ranch is that, you know, from these, you know, uh, apparent Skinwalker creatures from legend and lore, uh, you know, we don't really know. We haven't really, you know, caught that on tape, but there's a lot of interesting theories as to, uh, what may be causing that. And, and really, you know, if, if we as humans were to go to a, another planet and try to uh, investigate and research, you know, we we probably would. That's uh, human nature, I guess. But we would probably would abduct somebody or run some scientific experiments. On, we would do that, unfortunately. This is the final question because we've run out of time. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the little fireflies that we saw on Skinwalker Ranch? Oh, um, yeah, interesting with it, because, you know, I've seen, um, you know, all kinds of interesting little lights, not, even not during firefly season. Um, I, I've seen things like that before. So um, I, I believe it, it may be something significant there. Um, yeah, I just say that because I know we're out of time.
Huge thank you, mate. I've learned more than a lot this evening. It has been fascinating. We'd love to get you back on. There's tons of questions and, and interest. And, you, you know, you've got such a uh, scope of topics as well. So can you tell the viewers, please, where they can find you, support you, follow you? Absolutely. Uh, my primary website, MikeRickSecker.com. You can also find me on YouTube, the Haunted Road Media channel, which will be rebranded to Mike Rick Secker here soon. But for now, it's uh, Haunted Road Media. And then uh, my online learning site, which is ConnectedUniversePortal.com. All right. You take care, my friend. And I hope the shadow right. people leave you alone. Cheers, <laughs> Thanks, Sean. I appreciate right, it. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was absolutely mind-blowing. And we're going to bring Doug back in. There we go. I'm going, to, I'm going to bow out for now. So good luck, guys. Cheers. Hey, Doug. How are you, sir? Hey, Stephen. How are you? Very well, thank you. Welcome back. Um, before we jump in, I very much doubt I'd forgive myself if I didn't mention that incredible Big Lebowski poster you have behind you. Thank there. you. Bless you sir. for saying that. Yes, this is the dude, in fact. And... Um, I'm not obsessed with the movie or I don't have some, you know, weird relationship with uh, Jeff Bridges. I just really like that movie and it's, it was a good place to shoot when starting the video. So we kept it in. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. I get something from Thanks, that man. film every time I watch it. Um, so we'll, we'll have plenty of questions for you. Uh, plenty of questions in the chat as well, but just to sort of satisfy a curiosity of mine, which I never seem to get a solid answer on in terms of the church of Scientology, why the nautical theme? Well, Hubbard had this, he had a horrible um, Navy career and it was short. <clears throat> In fact, I have a video showing his diary entries of what he actually, these are secret that were never supposed to come out of him showing just how bad his Navy career was and how much he kind of envied um, wanting to, the whole structure of Scientology has something called the Sea Organization. These are the people that signed the billion-year contracts that were these intimidating Navy uniforms that we talked about previously. I think Hubbard was trying to emulate that with his cult and sort of regain, in his mind, he was delusional, so in his mind, he thought he was like a war hero, and Scientology is an extension of that fantasy that he has. So that's why the nautical theme. And also, there's a nautical part to that of him having to escape into the sea as various government agencies were sussing him and sussing his con and he went out to the ship to form the sea organization to get off the crossroads of the world as he says i.e run from authorities so that's when he sort of really went hardcore on the sea theme you know that's that's fascinating that's a that is a comprehensive answer i can take that one off thank you very much thank you awesome <laughs> i've always i've always thought as well do you do you feel in terms of organized religion that perhaps there's a disproportionate focus on Scientology as being a bit kooky and out there given it's a fairly new religion and whereas <laughs> older religions are tend, tend to be just accepted without question or almost as a virtue for some people is there a disparity there? I do but I make a distinction on that in the interview with Andrew we covered that the way yeah I do I personally do see it that way it does have too much attention on it um, mind you, it's a mafia organization that won't let you leave minus consequences. So that's the difference that we discussed with Andrew on the difference between a religion. Like if you're a Christian, for example, um, they may have just as crazy beliefs as Scientology, but you're more or less free to come and go. You don't have to believe. It's not like that with what I call, I call Scientology a secret society. I put it in the same category as the Freemasons, the OTO, and a whole bunch of other ones where they're set up like a pyramid structure. 
and they have various levels and you have to get to the various top to find out what the truth is because it always changes. So you learn one truth from the bottom up to clear and then you learn another, like I have to get rid of my subconscious mind. And then you're told about these body thetans, these entities that you have on you on the confidential level. So the truth completely changes. Now I don't have my own subconscious mind I have to get rid of. I have to get rid of the subconscious minds of all the beings that I'm now suddenly told are on me. And then by the time you get to the top, OT8, this level was removed by David Miscavige in the early 80s because it was so offensive to Christians in particular. You can't be any other denomination and be a Scientologist, but they claim that you can, and they try to beat it out of you. But some people that got up to this level in the 80s when it was available, it's since been changed by Miscavige to a lighter version. Um, they still held on to some of their Christian ideology, and they were offended when L. Ron Hubbard basically said that he is uh, Satan. He's Lucifer, the light bringer. He's come to fulfill the biblical prophecy talked about in the um, second coming. In other words, in the Bible, I know Christians, I'm not a Christian expert, so please, Christians, correct me. But apparently there's a brief period where the Antichrist would reign according to the Bible. And that period is now. And Hubbard said that he simply was uh, Lucifer, the light bringer, who was there to fulfill that. It's a super offensive document uh, to Christians. I have it on my YouTube channel. I have it in its own words of him speaking, if people want to see more about that. But the difference between a religion, which, um, you know, should I probably receive as much attention as Scientology? I think the reason Scientology uh, re gets more attention is because, of, like I said, the pyramid structure of the secret society, the fact that they're so vindictive um, on going after critics and it's it's very difficult to extract yourself it's not like that with your um with your local religion as far as i understand it sure i suppose that's a very important distinction isn't it i suppose mm -hmm. people are incredibly fascinated by this idea of auditing what that involves what the sort of uh, devices are that are used and what is the purpose of it maybe you can give me a, an outline of what a basic auditing session would be like Okay, I just want to give a precursor to that by saying I lay out um, in my channel um, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, particularly when Operation Paperclip and Project MK Ultra were in style. That's when Hubbard, um, his Scientology came out. And why that's important is because so much of what Hubbard says he's doing versus what's actually happening are completely different. So an auditing session is actually a hypnosis session. L. Ron Hubbard was first, he was two things. He was, I would call, I would say an expert in the occult and he was a master hypnotist. So what happens in an auditing session is every single word and everything that you do is reframed, which an expert hypnotist would be able to come on and, and say, oh, I see what you're doing. So an odd, so, so we start out with the E-meter, right? This, um, let me take you through the very first thing that they're going to probably have you do to introduce you to this weird thing called auditing and this E-meter, because normally you'll do a few choruses, you're, you're let in slowly. And then the very first thing that they probably will have you do is something called life repair. It's a very simple introductory auditing action to get somebody used to the weirdness of what you're about to go through. So what they do is they take you into this room, they sit you down. And they have a procedure that's designed to put you into hypnosis. But again, it's all reframed as if these are tools for life. So what you do is you're sitting in a comfortable chair. They hand you the cans, which are soup cans, connected to um, this device called an E-meter that has a needle 
that the psychotherapist on the other end is going to um, determine what's in your subconscious mind. So they, what they, the very first thing they say is they say, squeeze the cans, please. So you give a light, gentle squeeze and the auditor seeing the needle fall. They have to make sure that you're in a suggestible state is what it's all about. But they, but this is the procedure they put you through to, this is, I hope, I hope I can explain this without losing people too much, but it's really complex. And that's part of why you fall for it. Cause you just go along with it. Cause it sounds so scientific and it sounds so complex, just the opening. So squeeze the cans, please. And they make sure that the, the audit, the auditor has the needle on the dial. And then they say, take a deep breath hold it for a moment and let it out through your mouth. So I go, <sighs> again, the auditor's checking the needle. Now, the very first question after they get the needle, the meter all set up is they ask you four basic questions at the beginning of every session. And that is, do you have a present time problem? So what happens is these are the elements that you have to get out of the way before you can get into the body of the session. You can't have any upsets in your life going on. They have to handle that first. You can't have any present time problems, etc. So they say, do you have a present time problem? Now, if at the very end of that wording problem, the needle falls, they will take it up and they'll say, do you have a present time problem? Because it read on the meter. Now, if it doesn't fall after they, right after they ask that question, then they go on to the next one. Has a withhold been missed? A withhold is anything that you're withholding that you're not talking about. And again, if it reads, they take it up and you would go, yeah, I kind of um, stole $10 from my friend today and I didn't tell him about it. Thank you. Is there an earlier similar time a withhold has been missed? So that's an example of that's actually what happens. Does that make any sense at all or is that too complex? That makes sense to me. I suppose my question would be, what is the needle registering? Is this a random thing? Is this, is this coming? It's registering you know, is... nothing. It's all pseudoscience. Um, what it, well, what it's registering is the, um, what it says is that it's registering, okay, between the cans and the e-meter, there's, there's actually an electrical current going through your body, a light electrical current. And they say that pictures in your mind have mass so if you pull up a picture that needs to be taken up, something that has charge on it, the needle, according to Scientology, will fall because there's a resistance in that circuit. So when you pull up a picture in your mind, because you have electricity going through your body while you hold these cans, that resistance is what's going to cause the needle to fall. And my man, they have a whole program on how to be an auditor that breaks this down all scientifically where you're mind blown. You're like, holy, I mean, how did this guy figure out the subconscious mind this deeply? All it's doing is registering sweat or maybe you move the cans. No, it's doing nothing. It's complete pseudoscience. Sometimes um, here's something that's interesting, though. And L. Ron Hubbard was an awesome uh, con artist. So one of the things that convinced me that this meter was real is what they you ever seen those people that do a stress test, you know, where they're out there. Do you know anything about Scientology? You ever seen these freaks around? Yes, out, it's out not it's not quite as uh, widespread in the UK, but there is certainly a presence. But yeah, I've uh, I've read Going Clear. I've seen a few documentaries. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah. Well, anyways, they have these uh, weirdos that have these um, red uh, uniforms that they wear on. They have them specifically out here in Los Angeles where they try to rope people in with a stress test. And what they do is they have their little e-meter. They'll grab somebody off Hollywood Boulevard and they'll say, you know, sit down here and uh, let's go over some stuff. One of the things that they show these people and what they showed me, which is a trip, 
is they say the need overeats a subconscious mind. So what they do is while the person's holding the cans, they give them what's called a pinch test. So they pinch them. And while they pinch them, they say, watch the needle. So when they pinch them, the needle will fall. And then they say, recall the moment of the pinch. And they, they have the guy watch the meter. And when they do, it will actually fall roughly the same distance simply by remembering that. Now, I don't know how to, how to explain that exactly, um, but it's doing something where I've seen it enough and other people that have seen this test will agree that it actually does do that. That doesn't mean that you have a mass, uh, that pictures have mass, that there's a resistance occurring and that L. Ron Hubbard can magically read into your subconscious. It's just a trick that they're showing you to convince you that that meter works. Yeah, that's that's that. But, but that that was that's a major uh, part of making Scientology. Scientology has the word science in it. He used all sorts of words to make it sound legitimate. And then when you add in that e meter and you show them the little pinch trick, uh, the little pinch test trick, these can be pretty convincing as to following the rest of the trap. Absolutely. So I mean, we just brought up uh, Lawrence Wright's excellent work, Going mm -hmm. Clear. Uh, the book. I'm not sure if you're aware, but that book was actually delayed in the UK for the longest time because I didn't you, know that. Well, as, as you will know, the sign, the Church of Scientology, are incredibly litigious and use the full force of whatever yes. means they can to suppress yeah. dissent and criticism. And they actually exploited some really harsh UK libel laws to present the, uh, to prevent the publication of that wow. book for a while. We eventually got around it, but I think it was a several years. So I suppose my question is: Are, are you worried? about that aspect of the church, given you're such a vocal critic of it, that they have this well-financed legal team at their disposal that are obviously probably not very happy about you uh, making appearances on shows like this and, and giving the game away. Honestly, I, I've noticed a little more heat coming the more the channel grows, but I don't have too much worry about that. I'm not as prominent as the Leah Remini, Mike Rinder, and the other people that uh, are much more prominent. Also, there's the fact that because so many people have spoken out, they don't seem to be nearly as vicious as they used to be up to about 10 years ago and before. So the tide has definitely changed. No, I don't I don't worry about them. I did have a little trepidation when I first started talking out about it. I thought on day two of the first video, my mother and my father were going to be flanked on both sides with two of those Sea Org members, those people in the <laughs> Navy uniforms. No, I really thought they were going to show up at my house and try to talk to me. They weren't going to take me out in the backyard and off me. They were just, they have ways of trying to convince you to stop talking out about it. I did have some threats at the beginning. I had things happen with my car or whatever. I can't prove any of it. Scientology. It seems like not much has happened. And like I said, I'm not as prominent. And even if you are prominent, they have so much on their plate right now, my man. They have Danny Masterson, you know, uh, to deal with, which is shining a spot. That's a rape trial that's going on that, that's shining a spotlight on them. They have so much, so much to deal with. I don't think they're happy about it, but what can they do? I mean, they can't do anything. I don't have one of the things that prevents people from speaking out is they have everything in your life. You will tell them, especially by the time you get up to those confidential levels. So they have everything I've ever done in my folders and I don't have too many skeletons in my closet, you know? So that's what they use to shut people up, to um, go after them. They really can't do a whole a heck of a whole lot. They just can't. And also well, I don't, I, I was kind of hoping that they would, so I could get some footy, video footage showing how these freaks act. You know, they used to have the squirrel busters, these people called squirrel busters that would wear, um, there's some videos that if people are interested in, they have to check it out, but they would show up with video cameras and 
harass one of their top critics at the time named Marty Rathbun, and they would do all sorts of things to, you know, ruin your business and make you look like an idiot. But it's not like that anymore, for the well, most part, for the most well, part. That's something at least. And I suppose I mean, we briefly touched on other religions earlier and they have an advantage in a way of their prophets and the originators of their religions being sort of in the distant past, almost these mythical figures that we can't touch right. or know much, too much about. Whereas Scientology was born in the full light of day. We have a really clear picture of who L. Ron Hubbard was, what he believed, some of the more kookier aspects. It's well documented. It's within living memory. Yet many people mm -hmm. can somehow compartmentalize all that and still find the church a convincing place to hitch their wagon to, the Church of Scientology, that is. What, what is it about that, that sort of cognitive dissonance? How, how do we explain the fact that we can describe who the uh, the the originator of this religion is and what he believed, and, and and that should really expose the nonsense of it, but it doesn't seem to for some reason? Well, a couple of things on that. What's interesting about Scientology and Hubbard is you can he almost laid out how a religion how religions were created in the first place. Yes. So he's a very good model to use to suss other ones because you're right; it's in modern times. Another thing that's really um, key to get across, it's not sold as a religion. It's sold as a science of the mind, a technology and an answer for every single problem, paradox and conundrum a person has ever had. All the answers to life, scientifically proven. You don't have to have faith like a religion. Um, we were not thinking that we were involved in a religion. We knew it was kind of a tax scam. But Hubbard's um, technology was so convincing that it was accepted that we s said we were a religion. The, the, they give you lines to say to outsiders that ask these questions and they drill you on what to say. So one of the things people would say is, you know, how could this be a religion and this, that? Well, we say it's we would say it's not a religion. The only reason it's a religion is because like other religions, what we do have in common is we deal with the spirit or the soul but we are different and that we have a technology. You don't have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to have faith. You don't have to believe in something that you can't see. We will show you the answers and it's a science, hence Scientology. It's all, it really is sold that way. It's not sold like a religion. And we all know um, after being in and around it for a while, why, it, what the party line is to say to outsiders, oh, we deal with the spirit. That's why it's a religion. But secretly we're going, all these other religions are retarded. We have a science. Yeah, the word science is doing a lot of heavy lifting there, isn't it? Yeah, I, it is. I, suppo I suppose one, I mean, we spoke about the disproportionate attention brought to Scientology at the start of our conversation. And I suppose we can trace much of that back to the fact that it's it's linked with sort of Hollywood now. You know, some mm -hmm. big hitters in the in the world of Hollywood, are, you know, Tom Cruise, John Travolta, I believe, uh, are, are really wedded to this ideology. And I'm not particularly shy about saying so publicly. Um Good when asked, I suppose. Now, I suppose mm -hmm. the two questions here, is there an evangelical nature to Scientology in terms of if you're a Scientologist, are you told to share the word? And and secondly, what is it about Hollywood uh, that that they seem to be, that seem to gravitate towards this new religion? Well, Hubbard may be many things, including a psychopath, but he wasn't dumb. So obviously he could um, survey the world and go, gee, what are, who are people going to listen to more than anybody else, even though they, there's no qualifications to do so? Celebrities. So he, at the very beginning, created a celebrity center, and he had this policy called Project Celebrity, where he tried to get Walt Disney, 
Um, he, I think uh, Aldous Huxley got involved for a while. He targeted um, celebrities for the very obvious reason that those are the people who people listen to. So, it, you know, them having Tom Cruise alone has brought in more people to that church and probably is a main thing that's actually keeping it afloat besides the fact that they have their tax exempt status still. So that's just a no brainer. If you want to um, get people into your cult and make it seem um, legitimate, even though this makes no sense and is, I think is stupid, you simply bring in celebrities. So that's why he did that. And again, he had a whole program to make sure that that happened. And what was the second part that you asked, Stephen? Um, I think you answered the second part first. So I think the first thing I asked was, is there a, an evangelical spread the word? Oh, aspect definitely. It's kind of a requirement because the way Scientology works is because Scientology gave you all the wins and gains and success in your life. My, my dad in particular um, started to do better in Scientology. And there's a snag to that. Um, I, I, it's too much to go into detail, but people can have their income and their um, life start to change because they're love bomb. They have people helping him. And there's all sorts of um, elements going on that can maybe make you improve your life temporarily. Um, but it's a requirement because you can't just kind of do Scientology. This is why a lot of people practice it outside of the church, by the way, because of the actual organization requires it. Scientology, um, without getting too technical, they push um, these things called the dynamics. You have to be successful in every area of your life. The first dynamic is self. Um, another dynamic would be groups. Another dynamic would be God. All the basic elements that a human being might have an urge to survive through naturally. The one that they push the most is the group. Scientology gave you all the success you have in your life. Therefore, you have to contribute back. And a huge part of that is proselytizing. They definitely want you to get members in. It's kind of part of the requirement to get out of those confidential levels. You have to show that you've contributed. You have to show how many people you've got in. You have to show how much you proselytize, how much you're hardcore. And I felt a compulsion to do that too. It's part and parcel with the cult, but I also hated it. So I only got, I got a few people in, all of which left quickly. And the only person that I got in that stayed in was an ex-girlfriend who, thank God, left uh, when I did, because she was just basically doing it when I did. But absolutely. In fact, you can make a living, and some people do, by getting people into Scientology and getting 10% of all the services that they take. It's, it's, it's even more hardcore than converting people in other religions. You need to get people in because why the hell wouldn't you? We're saving the planet. We don't have time to waste. We need as many people on board as possible. It's not a church on Sunday school. It's a full-time life-changing commitment. Right. And uh, something rang true to me earlier when you were saying they they almost market it to strangers as this new way of taking control of stress you know you know it's a busy world out there people are stressed come inside and we can help you with that so let's just say i i, I rock up to my local church of scientology which is located in my home city of manchester uh, there is a there is a uh, base sorry to there. hear that yeah I, nothing i can do about it unfortunately yeah, but yeah. let's just say I, I was to rock up there and say i'm, I'm very keen about mm -hmm. self-improvement and dealing with stress what would they do with me from there what would be the first stages of sort of indoctrinating me into the church of scientology the very first thing they'd have you do is fill out a personality test and after that you would take a pseudo iq test the personality test is rigged to find your vulnerability and push that button is what they call it so you'd fill out a 200 questionnaire 
So you walk in and say, hey, I'm interested in Scientology. And they say, the, the very first thing is, here's a 200 questionnaire. Go into this room over here and fill it out. It takes about an hour. And they're very, by the time you're done with it, you might be a little spaced out because the questions are vague. They're worded in such a way to re-stimulate you. That's their word in Scientology for getting under your skin. <laughs> and it's a really trippy test, man. So by the time, and, you, and you, you fill in yes, no, or maybe to the questions that are, that are asked. One of the questions that is asked, paraphrasing here is, do you spend an exorbitant amount of time looking through dictionaries? It's random, weird, right? So you're already thinking, right? Now imagine doing 200 of those and then filling out their stupid little IQ test. And then they're going to take you into a room. And based on that test, it's all rigged. Um, I'm going to do a video on how it's actually rigged to, it is good at actually finding people's weak, weak spots. Um, so let's say, let's say you had a problem. It almost all centers around communicating. It's sort of like um, doing a cold reading on someone or throwing yes. the bones, right? It's, you're going to hit on something. So they say, okay, well, you're having problems in your work, right? You're not making as much money as you want. You want to be more successful. You said you're tired all the time, Stephen, right? If you could learn how to communicate better, because they almost all try to center it around getting you onto this communication course to start. Not always, but that's sort of the, the one they want to get you on. So any problem you say, they're probably going to say, if you could just learn how to communicate better, if you could confront people, if you could look people in the eye, Stephen, I noticed earlier you're looking down when you're talking to me. We need to get you looking right in the person's eye and having that confidence. This is what they would say. Let's say even if you were, you know, looking down at them when you were in that room, they're they're very trained to get under your skin. And you know, this is what happened to me, my dad, my mother, and my sister. It's called finding your ruin. And once in a while, they can touch upon something that if you're in there for hours on end to get you to open up to something that you wouldn't tell your most intimate partner. You know, I have a feeling my dad told them stuff that my mom doesn't know about to this day. So they kind of can create a quote unquote safe space talking to this stranger. Well, you, I felt compelled after a while to tell them my deepest stuff that I didn't want to tell anybody. Once they have that on you, they can do all sorts of numbers on you if you now that's followed up immediately. Okay, so we need you have a problem communicating. So you're looking down again, Stephen. We got to get you communicating. If we, <laughs> I need this, to stop this course at my is notes. 50, hey, I'm just being <laughs> I'm just being a Scientologist right now. I'm just giving you a hard time. But so but uh, but I'm trying to give you a real life example. So they say, look, it's a hundred dollars. Do you have, can you pay cash or credit? It's just full on, right? We'll get you signed up for this communication course right now. It'll only take you a week. And here's some of the raving success stories. Did you know that John Travolta and Tom Cruise are in this? Did you know that Tom Cruise used to have dyslexia and this course, along with the study technology, fixed it? We got to, you got to try this, Stephen. So let's sign you up today. So that's what they do. And it's only a hundred bucks. So some people, if they're crying or they did get their ruin, they'll take to it. And then the next thing they would do is they'd sign you up for that communication course. We covered that on Sean's previous one. I can break out again if you want, but that would most likely be the next step. So we're not even at that auditing yet. You know, Stephen, we're, we're, we haven't even gotten onto the bridge yet. And what I described to you earlier with the needle and squeeze the cans and all that, that's kind of advanced level stuff. There's many other courses that you would take along the lines of the communication course before you get into that, let alone the Xenu and stuff. You touched on something I, I was actually going to ask you about moments ago when you said they, they managed to collect all this information on you when you, you feel 
trusting enough to spill some of your most personal thoughts and feelings and details and then they collect this information and then they can hold it over you in a way and so that's a common practice in what way are these things logged is it paper-based is it audio recordings is it video and, and where right. are they kept okay well remember at the beginning of the auditing session um they asked you questions do you have a present time problem has a withhold been missed let's take that question has a withhold been missed at the very beginning of every session you might you're, you trust this person after a while. So you'll tell them all the things that you're withholding that you wouldn't tell your friends. The auditor writes all this down in short form. Now they have a lot to record because the session moves fast and there's a lot that the, the they call them the pre-clear. That would be you. And then there's the auditor. Um, they have a lot that the pre-clear, the, the newbie Scientologist would be saying to the auditor. So they write it down real fast and they're trained how to take shorthand and those folders are kept for life and that's what they go through now also when you get onto the ot levels they do something called a security check and that's a really in-depth one that's not just asking you has a withhold been missed but tell me time place form an event of every past bad deed you've ever done something along those lines trust me they're really thorough um once you've been in for a while on having certain auditing actions that will get every single thing on you and when you join the organization as a Sea Org member, they have you fill out a whole life history. Have you masturbated? Who are your sexual part? Every single minor detail you can imagine. Are you connected to any psychiatrist, any psychologist? Because we can't have you anywhere near those people. What's your family background, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've been in for like, what, 20 some years or whatever, however long I've been in and gone up to basically the top, they know more than I know about myself. They'd probably be able to, you know, <laughs> reel off things back to me in their folders because they keep they keep everything. And that is, uh, again, what makes it different from a religion, perhaps, and also what makes them criminal and uh, and mafia like because Elrond, they're all it's all based on Hubbard's mentality. And Hubbard's mentality was you never forgive. You never forget. You always make somebody pay that goes against Scientology, always up to and including uh, actually killing them. And that's in a policy by Hubbard ruin them utterly and uh, do you feel like he may have ever enacted that policy do you think do you think there has been some covert slayings in the name of scientology you mean myself or has that been done to me do i think uh, i mean do you think sign the scientology the church of scientology have ever, ever made somebody disappear uh someone i mean do would they absolutely. have power to do that absolutely i never know what i can say on these podcasts about i'm always careful not to libel myself because they they do pay attention and you know they like to get you on any little thing so let me just say that if someone wanted to scour the internet there's tons of information about there about people they've had quote unquote disappeared and my they wouldn't necessarily do it directly they would hire uh they would have many levels of if they were going to take someone out they would do it through um many levels of buffering meaning the person that would actually take that person out would have no connection to the Church of Scientology. They're very careful to cover their tracks if it's going to get up to something like that. But for the most part, they don't do that. They simply try to ruin you and bury you. Um, they try to get you to lose your job. They find out they have a whole program that they tell their operatives, which is called OSA. That's their equivalent of the CIA that stands for Office of Special Affairs. It's a whole dedicated unit on finding out what does this person hold valuable and go after it and attack it viciously. So if it was your income, Stephen, if it was whatever, they would find out your background and they would um, take away 
what you value the most. So you shut your mouth. That's what they normally do. Um, and it gets worse than that too. It just depends on who they're dealing with and how serious it, that critic is. Doug, thank you very much for your time. That's been absolutely thank fascinating. You. I feel I could speak to you all evening about this and uh, we'll hopefully have you back at another time to answer some Anytime. of the audience questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Take care. You too. So for those of you in the chat who've uh, submitted questions, uh, they are great. I've had a look through them, but we've had a slight change in the schedule and um, we will hopefully have Doug back uh, next time to answer them. I'm talking about having Doug back, but he's still actually here, which is, yeah, I know. Which it's, is rude it's... of me to talk talk about you as if you're not here. <laughs> Do you want me to just disappear? Do you have your next guest ready to go and you're, you're good to go? I, I'll be honest. I'm only pretending to know what's happening. Okay, uh, can I help you out here? Cause, cause Certainly. I... Oh. <laughs> that was fantastic comedy timing. Yeah, thank you to Doug. Uh, fantastic guest, very knowledgeable. Uh, Roderick Martin, welcome. How are you, sir? Welcome, welcome. I'm doing all right. Glad oh, to be here with you. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, maybe for those of us who are not familiar with your work or your interest, uh, I know you're giving us some clues there on the shelf in the background, but maybe you could just let us know exactly what you do. What, what keeps you busy? Well, I am a UFO investigator. I work with the uh, MUFON um, organization, which is a volunteer organization that cover UFO cases when people submit those. Uh, but also a researcher, um, of course, you know, I do a podcast as well called Why the Big Secret YouTube channel, but also have been in several TV shows. Um, I actually have a show that's out now on the Discovery Plus. I'm one of the three hosts. It's called Alien Endgame. Um, recently been in a, a documentary called Aliens, Abductions, and Roswell 75, which is on Fox Tubi. Roderick, is um, there any, any possibility you could turn your microphone up a little bit, please? All right. Is that better? A little bit. Is it, will it go any higher? All right. Let's see. Uh, oh, hang on. Let me do it over here in the uh, live stream area. Close. I'm trying to do it in the settings. Do you? Are you able? I to think do it that's a little area? bit better. How, how do we feel in the chat? Can we can we hear Roderick <clears throat> loud and clear now? Is that a lot better? Right, yeah, that's up. much better. Thank you for that. Please okay. continue. All right, so as I said earlier, I am a MUFON field investigator for MUFON, and um, I'm also a researcher, and I do this uh, UFO thing full-time. I'm in several documentaries, as I said real quickly, Discovery Plus Channel. There's a show called Alien Endgame. There's a show on uh, Fox Tubi, uh, which is called Aliens, Abductions, and Roswell 75. Uh, was in a recent release with the Black Knight Satellite, which was uh, done by Billy Carson uh, in that documentary as well. And then uh, been on a couple of shows with George Norrie that's going to air soon from Gaia, uh, Regina Meredith from Gaia. And then um, got an eight episode series that's out on Forbidden Knowledge TV Network as well. And then also um, just recently came back filling a few things for Ancient Aliens that's coming up. So Really excited about that. So thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Well, it seems like it's a full-time issue. And sorry to ask you again, but if there's any way you can get that microphone a little bit higher, that would um, be really appreciated. 
But while you're fiddling with that, I'll I'll let you know where I am on this. So I'm a massive skeptic when it comes to these things. Not to be confused with cynic, though. I'm actually rooting for you guys. I want there to be aliens. I want there to be UFOs. I want it all to be true. I want to believe, essentially. Uh, and I suppose many people would ask, uh, what on earth could you point to as the best possible evidence for the existence of extraterrestrials? All right. How's that with the mic? Um, there is a section on your end that you can turn my mic up if you see it down in the producer's uh, section. But you're operating under the false assumption I have any clue what I'm doing, Roderick. <laughs> okay. Then I am investigating that part. Now that I've got my data in that you don't know, then... <laughs> I can shout, though. If you want me to shout, I'll shout. Maybe the microphone a little closer to the mouth and we can work from there. It's not bad for me, but I think some of the, uh, yeah, some of, I think there's, there's an issue in terms of some people in the chat might need their ears testing and, and some people are okay. So I, th I think we've, we think we found a happy balance now. Okay, but yeah, testing. Is uh, it a happy balance now at all? It's, it's fine for me. I think the chat may have been struggling, but I think, yeah, everyone's okay. saying a little bit better. We will persevere, uh, Roger. So I, I was just asking you, for people like me who are complete skeptics of the existence okay. of extraterrestrials, what could you show me that would make my eyes light up? Well, I think when you think about being a UFO investigator first, let me give the audience, you know, typically we don't inspect UFOs, okay? We, we're going to, you know look at secondhand evidence from pictures, testimonials, uh, you know, videos and everything else. So I don't have any evidence that I part now I saw a UFO when I was 12 years old, but now I can show you pictures and things that, in which I can't bring them up here. I wasn't prepared to do that, but in the future, if you have me back, I'll come back with some stuff. But in the, in, in many cases, we got enough evidence out there that we're not alone in this universe, that we are being visited. Um, and, and, and now it's time to kind of, you know, trust the witnesses. There's just so many people now having these experiences. People are seeing these things with their, you know, cameras and, and photographs. And of course, now you got the governments coming out, uh, literally saying, hey, there's something out there flying around. We don't know what it is. And that, so being a, a skeptic as you are, um, my question to you would be, what makes you a skeptic? Why is it a transitional thought that you can't, you know, fathom the part? Is it that we're not alone in the universe or UFOs are real? <laughs> I think, I, I mean, I, I fully understand and expect and probably believe in the possibility of aliens out there. I'm just not convinced we've been visited. And I think that comes down to the mm. fact that I feel like the evidence is either non-existent or especially weak. Uh, a lot of anecdotal information, a lot of eyewitness testimony, a lot of things that can't be corroborated. And I feel like in a digital age where we have this amazing amount of computation in our pocket, in our cell phones, and these incredibly high resolution cameras and all these media devices that we don't seem to be getting the, you know, the the gotcha, the the, the one piece of information that would blow this whole thing open and, and convince people like me. It actually feels like sightings have declined compared to where we were in like the 50s and 60s when it was wall-to-wall -wall pictures and uh, videos and things like that well and and it, you go by steve or steven uh steven okay all right so steven first of all let's talk about you know when you said witnesses and and, and we know like i'm here in the united states our entire legal system is based upon witness testimonials 
You know, you can literally go to jail for life just because someone else said you did it. And and I think in the you ufology community, and, and when you come down with this, this is uh, Robert Salas, who was the former uh, U.S. captain uh, of the military when he was at Malmstrom's Air Force Base, and he witnessed the UFOs turning off our nuclear weapons. I, I've spoken to him on several occasions. And uh, Bob Salas, as people look him up. But one of the things he said was, Roderick, it's time to trust the witnesses. And, and I believe that because, you know, we we do have our government now that is trying to, you know, cover things up and have always done it. Uh, but again, it's so I will encourage you to look at some of these witnesses testimonies, look at the emotional impact that it has on them and their families, the careers and all of those things. And, and it'll probably help a little bit of saying, OK, give you the benefit of doubt. Maybe they're telling some truth. Now, when you go back to the 60s and the 50s, there was no restraint uh, on those conversations, because at that time, you either were seen crazy or, or stupid to be even talking about UFOs back in the 40s, 50s, or 60s. And so, therefore, not until it became a real factor, where now all of a sudden our government is saying, let's shut this down, you know, because of technological issues or military or national security or the big secret itself. And so, a lot has changed when it comes down to that. So, well, like I say, I'm rooting for you. I want you to be right on this one. And I suppose what's got me really excited these last few years, uh, somebody who was very dismissive of things before that was this uh, UFO sighting that's been documented and recording that's been known colloquially as the Tic Tac. Now, this is okay. something that was observed with military technology by credible people and was also registered on uh, sort of sensitive uh, sensors and equipment. I mean, there is, it's undeniable that something was there and we don't know what it is. It does not mm -hmm. move like anything we're familiar with. It doesn't seem to have any sort of propulsion. Uh, it's, it's incredible, uh, really. And that's where I am on that. I'm of the, I don't know what it is, but it's exciting to think about. Now, what, what's your instinct on, on these things? When I'm, And it seems to me as well, the people who work in this field are of the opinion that these kind of sightings are not actually that uncommon within the military. They, they seem to be filed away by the military quite often. And we're only just getting to see some of the evidence of that. Well, there's been stories and accounts that uh, these sightings typically happen on a daily basis, daily with a D. Um, but when you think about um, how our military could possibly work, and I'm not in the military, but one thing's for certain, uh, on a public perception, you don't want uh, to have some fear out there that there's something flying around with technology and tech uh, that's better than ours, outrun the wind almost, um, mm. you know, uh, and then all of a sudden someone can tie a weapon on this thing, right? So where does that put us? Because our military is here to protect us, per se. So I think when it comes down to that, um, and, and it's nothing, it's the same as most people say, I can't see what I, I can't believe what I don't see, okay? Uh, but let's back up to the Tic Tacs. So when you, when you see things that they're reporting, you know, here's this thing that's this transmedium technology, number one, meaning it can go from space, air to water. Uh, we don't have anything on this planet that can do that. And that alone tells you enough just, you know, how great this technology is. Because yeah, when you use the word, Stephen, propulsion, propulsion usually is going to consist of some type of 
fire, you know, just this thing. Imagine that yeah. going into the water. Okay. Now, of course, propulsion in a submarine, you know, just moving from the rudders and all that things. But what I'm saying is if you can imagine a jet craft going dark into the water, then that is just the engine is just going to stall out, period. So all of this tells us, and, and, and not just the military, who knows that this is something that's out of their reach, but as a person in the public, it just it gets you to go what you know get curious and it's less like you said what is it what is that um but then you you quickly can understand that it's not made from this earth it's yeah i mean i mean obviously like you've mentioned before you have to then you for, for that not to be true you'd have to accept the possibility that mm -hmm. someone on earth's got this ridiculously dangerous and advanced um technology that presents a clear and present like security threat threat but of course there's a possibility maybe of natural phenomena, um, perhaps. Uh, I think somebody... Um, okay, think when you somebody... say natural, what do you mean? Like ghostly or... Give me your definition of natural. There may be something that can be observed and is objectively verifiable. There's okay. often things that appear supernatural until we record them evidence them and, and see them repeat and then they just become simply part of the natural world many forms of weather would have been like this centuries ago and it, i'm wondering if it's a possibility that there it's such a a rare occurrence because you've got to remember that the ocean's a huge body of water lots of things may happen either in the water or above the water that we just would not be able to record or witness possibly a, a natural some sort of natural phenomena i think somebody had posited the idea perhaps it could be a, a drone from another planet this idea that we're being probed uh, from a distance uh, it's quite an exciting one uh, but i mean maybe you could just let us know i suppose people are really interested in what it physically looks like what the eyewitness testimony said about this tic tac because the video in question uh it's, it's black and white and it's very difficult to actually make out any distinguishing features but what have the people said who have observed it firsthand what have they said they were looking at what have they managed to eyeball about these uh these uh ufos well i think if if we're going to reference to the TikToks, tic tac videos i'm sorry um those are were typically being viewed by military aircraft picked up on highly sensitive uh, sensors and, and, and moving incredible speed. So the naked eye is not going to be tracking it as fast as we saw in some of those videos. And then if you think about the elevation, 30, 40, 50,000 uh, feet into the sky, a human, we're not going to get a lot of on the ground observations to say, okay, what does this witness unless it came, you know, to a lower vicinity. Um, so, but the technology that comes about these Tic Tacs is, again, uh, like you said, it is, you know, they instantaneous acceleration, you know, the transmedium technology, you know, the speed that they can travel, the G-forces that when they went into the ocean and just continue to go where something we've had will just, you know, destroy itself, hitting the water like a brick. Uh, but when you really start to think about something you just brought up of could it be some other country's technology now my personal opinion and my opinion only you know we have one of the most feared uh military mites in the world uh, we we have the greatest technology not to say from your country and our country but the united states military i think and there are countries out there that will probably give everything they can to have just one shot 
at bringing down some of these technology that this government, you know, poses in the military. So we know quite naturally uh, it's not another country that has that technology. Uh, now we come back to say drones, like you just said, that someone made suggested is from outer space. Okay. Now that is probably a great possibility. Um, but then we take in the water account that you just mentioned. Earth is 73% water. Uh, mankind has only explored, explored maybe 3% of the oceans. We, we don't even have technology to go to the bottom. That, that was mostly James Cameron as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a possibility if that's the, where they're going to hide, it's a perfect place to hide. But then think about it. You know, I work with MUFON and there was a time that most of our cases that people were reporting that sometimes were in some of the places where water, the top three states was uh, Texas, not Texas, I'm sorry, uh, California, Florida, and Michigan around water. So uh, that tends to, to lend to my suggestion and most everyone else that that's where they are. They're here on earth with us places that we just can't go to find them yet but at the same time i I think it's perfect for them well in terms of talking about advanced human technology it's almost seen as a relief that it seems far too advanced to be something china or maybe russia can come up Mm -hmm. with but my thought on that is that if it's not human technology it represents a sort of interplanetary advanced technology that really is indicative of like an existential threat in terms of this incredible superpower, this technology that can come and visit us on a whim, seemingly undetected, uh, and get out of there. I mean, does that does that worry you? Have you given any thought to the intent behind these uh, UFO sightings or visitations, if they are legitimate? Well, I, I think that in this story, Stephen goes to kind of sounds like you're saying, well, Roderick, you know, should we believe because they have not done anything to provoke us or attack us? Or is there any evidence of that? Or are there any, you know, malevolent reasons or why they're here? And I, I think that if we if we tend to think about them being a higher intelligence, then a higher intelligence really don't have no need to confront something that they know they can be victorious about if they wanted to, right? You know, it's no different than... Uh, as a joke, I would say you, you stand in your front yard and, you know, and, and this analogy will be us being the ants. Okay. And you look out in your front yard and you say, wait a minute, you look over there and the ant nest is burning up the grass. And you go, well, honey, those darn ants over there is really going to mess up the yard. So you have a choice because you got the power. You can go down to the hardware store and, 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 and annihilate the whole colony because you could do that. You're right. But you show mercy and you say, you know what, long as they just keep to themselves. But if they get over here or come out here, then we got something to say about it. So I think as long as we keep our, you know, human negative things here on Earth. Now, we are trying to get off the planet and maybe that'll be a whole different ballgame. But for right now, I think they know uh, that they have technological advancements over us. and if you look in history, we are probably have did more provoking things toward them than they have us. But I'm also an insurance guy. I pay insurance on my car just in case. And I'm also for the military be ready just in case. Yeah, we need to figure out how to uh, upload that virus to the mothership in case, <laughs> in case of invasion. But I suppose, yeah. um, I know these two things are linked, but I suppose alien sightings are very different 
from the idea of UFO sightings. It's perfectly possible to believe we've been visited by alien crafts, maybe manned or unmanned. But are you of the persuasion that aliens have actually explored our planet, stepped foot? And any of the um, sightings seem credible to you? I suppose Roswell's probably the most famous. The the idea that we've had the government, the American government, are actually in possession uh, of dead alien cadavers. Is, is that something you entertain? I, I entertain it. Um, and if if I had to have a scale of one to ten and ten being the highest of do I believe, um, I'm gonna probably be at eleven. Uh now, okay, how do I do that without actually seeing physically the evidence? And and you know, when you start thinking about uh hearing some of these stories, like I've probably interviewed four hundred people, you know, witnesses or people that have had experiences, feel that they've been abducted or being visited. Uh, and then you couple that with some of the uh, photographs and, and things that, and then of course you got your government cover-ups and, and, and once these dots begin to connect, Stephen, then you begin to, again, awaken that curiosity, uh, you know, to the possibility of things, but uh, being visited. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not alone in this universe. I think uh, most scientists now are kind of leaning toward that to kind of reveal that to people. Uh, that there we're not alone in the universe. Now, I think the most people want to know well, who, what, where are they coming from? Um, and But uh, there was a Brookings report that was sanctioned or commissioned by NASA back in the 40s or 50s. And one of the things that they wanted to find out was how would the public react to the knowledge that we're not alone in this universe? Um, and when it came back, don't tell them. And, 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 and it's a very good reason why. Uh, that they don't do it. And and it's kind of an inspiration for the name of my channel and, and everything else. And if you've seen the movie, Man in Black, uh, and obviously you watch movies like I do, <clears throat> then you kind of remember that time when Will Smith was sitting on the bench with Tommy Lee and he says, why the big secret? You know, people are smart. And then he says, yeah, a person is, but people are dumb, stupid, you know, as a collective, they can't handle the truth. Right. And so, that's what we really truly have is they've been knowing, you know, because, and, and it'll be a question for yourself, Steve, you know, what do we say about ancient civilizations? What do we say about these pyramids and all these things that are here long before, and we don't even have technology to build them or move them. You know, do we not take that accountability that something else has been happening here? Yeah. So I suppose the idea of um, the population and society in general being, being, you know, uh, un unable to cope with this massive uh, revelation that we are not alone. And not only that, that our government yeah. have known about it for a long time. I suppose I could probably get on board with that being true in some way. But where I struggle a little bit is giving governments the credit to be competent enough to keep such a huge thing secret, given how many leaks we've seen on on all sorts of things and, and from what WikiLeaks has uncovered and how we know these people are fallible. Uh, I think you used the phrase he's dumb and stupid earlier. I would apply that to many politicians in many ways. So do you, do you think a governing body is is capable of keeping these secrets and not only keeping those secrets, but keeping them secret on a, what I would assume would have to be a global scale because, you know, it can't just be America that's aware of these things. It must be China as well then or Russia as well. It just seems strange that these three people who are almost antagonists would collude with each other to keep this one big secret. Well, I consider them being, and that's a great question, by the way, I, I consider them being the big secret keepers. That's what I label 
them and that gives the audience to, you know, plug in anybody they want to assume who's the secret keepers. So in this case, you know, what you're speaking about the government and it's bigger, uh, you're talking about contractors and, and private sector and people all in cahoots of keeping this secret big and, and, and well, the big secret, you know, a secret. And so the government just don't have to do it by themselves. Um, and they know that. And so therefore, you know, but the real reason is tech, is technology. Okay. Whoever gets it rules the world, period. And so for those who have it, then, you know, our country is not going to let the other country know that we just found something that we can turn into a ray gun, you know, or some type of machinery or, but look at our tech, look at our stealth fighters and all of this stuff and how it evolved. So we know they're reverse engineering some things and, and also coming up with things. But when it comes down to the government, you know, I think that, uh, and, 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 and we want to break that down in two parts here. So most people think it's the government itself. It's the military institution, uh, installations and institutions, I'm sorry, that really keeps this thing because over here on one hand, the government is temporaries that can get out uh, and not the government itself, but the officials who orchestrate things. Take a president, for instance. You know, we think just because we voted someone in, oh, they're going to pop the big secret open. Not when they're sat down with some general who's been doing this thing for 30 years and letting them know, no, you temporary, we cannot let this out. Uh, and so there's a lot of variables. And then don't even mention the money. Follow the money. The, there's billions of dollars in the research of anything that we can find as extraterrestrial origin. And when this is given to private contractors, and now they're going to keep the secret, they're getting billions from us, the taxpayers. And that's why I always say UFO taxes should be a new hashtag. You know, we need to be finding out where our money goes. And so when that goes into the private sector, billions of dollars, Stephen, and now the private sector now has thousands of employees who are also signing NDAs of secrecy. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job. Everybody is covering this thing up, and this is huge. So it goes beyond the government, as you would say, and I will answer you, yes, they're capable of keeping it a secret. That's why we don't know much of what we know now. And so when we think about disclosure, People think, oh, we're going to get disclosure. We're going to get what we can tell them we know. They're not going to open up the other doors and say, oh, by the way, y'all didn't know this. So take a look at all of this. Long as it can be kept, we will never know. Well, that's a good answer. Very detailed. Uh, somebody in the chat, Christopher Levens, has just asked an excellent question, actually. Uh, it might be a bit too late in the conversation to get into this in in detail. But uh, I suppose with you hailing from the States, there's um uh, a possible, you know, larger possibility that you may be a man of faith, a Christian man. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, is that true? And second of all, would life elsewhere, extraterrestrial life that predates our civilization, uh, would that throw into doubt uh, your faith in any way? Well, for starters, uh, I am a Christian and I've always been. Um, and although I look into the possibility of all curiosity over everything. Um, and so, and then also having, what's the word I'm looking for? Having the boundaries of my own life. You're going to have to have these boundaries yourself. And so you're going to believe in, but I don't think that um, I'm all into all of the stories in the history of things that we have been told. Uh, so for example, uh, 
there was just in my house where I was raised, this is it. The book is the book. The word is the word. And within that, this is it. And so, but then when I, as I got a full grown adult, I'm able to question those things. I couldn't do that with my mom. You know, he's not having it. Right. And one of the things that even when I was looking at Genesis and, and maybe whoever said that can answer the question, you know, Genesis chapter one, I think verse 26, let's try that one. And it says, let's make man in our image in the likenesses of ourselves. Now, of course, you know, I went to school. We all went to school. So ours is plural, ourselves is plural. So obviously talking about somebody and who we supposed to be looking like. But then what's the true answer to that? And that would be whether it's the Trinity, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, or whatever in that word, ire, or who said it. But it's in the book, so I'm supposed to follow that book. Uh, but then there's a lot of uh, scriptures and different things that says things differently. Uh, and there are stories in the Bible that this pick, that gives you the idea of extraterrestrial origins. And so, but at the end of the day, I am a Christian and I probably would always be one, but I'm open-minded with curiosity as a human and, and as a person who is seeking the truth. It's a good answer. And we could probably talk about this, the Bible, aliens, technology, UFOs for mm -hmm. another hour or so, sir, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Maybe you could just point people towards where they can find out more of your content, your channel and, and what else you're up to. Well, um, I'm on uh, the YouTube channel called Why the Big Secret, and and that's where the podcast is given, and it goes on Spotify and other places. And so uh, I do also do a, a show uh, Tuesday nights, and that is uh, always on Forbidden Knowledge TV. So um, I'm there Tuesday night. In fact, last night I had a bishop who were in the pulpit. He was over five churches, and once he made the discovery of what he thought was some truth and within our origin, you know, he stepped out away from the pulpit. So I interviewed him last night and got a huge perspective of that. But why the big secret uh, YouTube channel? Uh, I would love for people to subscribe and, and participate in some of the things. But most importantly, I'm glad you had me here. That's our pleasure. Again, Roderick, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, have a pleasant day. Thank you. Always fascinating. I'm, I've always, Sean, I've always got lots of time for UFO stories. <laughs> Honestly, they, they, they set the lights off in my brain. I'm not convinced, but I, I want it to be true. Yeah, because it could be military stuff that's secret from us. It could be, you know, foreign countries trying to skirt other populations. There's all kinds of explanations, isn't it? And if you think time of Time travelers. I don't think anyone's travelers. thrown that into the ring yet. Infinite time as well. What could happen over infinite time? So much, everything, so many possibilities. Apparently, yeah. Stephen, do you want to tell the viewers where they can find and follow you? And thank you for doing this this evening so far. My absolute pleasure. Yeah, I've got a YouTube channel. I I host the Night Tube. It's a mix of interviews and live reporting from events. You can find that on YouTube.com forward slash G Spellchecker. I'm sure someone will be kind enough to put that in the chat for me as well. All right, massive thank you, Stephen. And we're going over to Patreon now. We'll be up in about 10 minutes there with Juliet Bryant, who survived two years with E and M, as in the Who Killed E case. So there are lots of unmentionables, things we can't talk about on YouTube we're going to be talking about over there. If you want to join us on Patreon, link is in the description box for this video. And then we've got Tommy Dunn's the godfather of pranks out of Manchester. You may have seen some of his pranks, uh, Wimbledon, 
World Cup, the farting at the snooker game that got 6 million views. He's the man behind the pranks. He's coming on tomorrow at 6 o'clock. So if you want to join us on Patreon, link is in the description. Huge thank you to all the viewers tonight for all your questions and everything else. It's been fantastic. Hello. We are about to start part two of Atwood Unleashed 77. Thank you for being here in the Patreon section. Huge shout out to everybody in the live chat right now. And we're going to be bringing in Juliet Bryant shortly. See Matthew Steeples, Verity, Ash, Amy, A-Nexus, Ray J, of course, all in the chat. And Agent Orange. All right, let me find Juliet. Do you remember the other part we did with Juliet? And she just blew our minds with the information she had about the Clintons. It was something else after Bill had protested that he hardly had anything to do with bloody Epstein. Yeah, according to Julia, there was a lot more going on. There was a lot of communication between Epstein and Bill. Hey, Julia, how's it going? Hi, Sean. Very good. Thanks. And you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great to see you. And congratulations on your book is imminent, is it? So much, yeah. I'm getting there. I've got all the information together. And I've, the next step is to, I'm thinking to actually self-publish. Well, um, what what is the book going to be called? <laughs> uh, sorry, Sean? What's the book going to be called? Probably The Dragon and the Apple. But okay. maybe The Dragon and the Apple and the Butterfly. It might need to be three books. It's become a lot of information. So How, how many words are you at? Oh, um, at least a hundred thousand. Yeah, hundred thousand is a good, yeah. a good, a good thing. And I need to add in, and you know, because it's basically research all put together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I can't and, wait to read that. So, to, to um, you know, last time you came on, you shared your story with us. Because of the nature of it, I've got to ask you: that it's a police requirement on the channel. Do you waive your anonymity? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you for that. And tonight we were going to get into some of your book chapters, I believe, and starting with the Epstein one. Yeah, I just thought I'd, I've actually written it down. I'm sorry, I need to read it because it's quite a lot of information. I wanted to make sure I shared as much as I could. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely fine. We, we had a twin on recently who was abused from age nine. And she's uh, she wrote a book when she was a teenager. And she was... It was okay. like half interview, half her reading out of a book, but the way she detailed everything, it, it came across really well reading it from the book. Yeah, so, I just thought I'd be more prepared, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So which which part would you like to start with then on Epstein? Well, I just thought I'd give everyone like the basic rundown how, you know, I met Epstein with Bill Clinton when I was 20 and I was taken America, to America to model, but I was actually lied to and kidnapped to the island. And then, you know, what happened there completely changed me and there were many things that I could never really explain or understand. Um, I kept it all in for many years. But when Epstein apparently died, reporters started to contact me and I, I had no choice but to start talking. I wasn't able to tell my whole story as it's, um, a lot of it is beyond what we can understand and accept. I myself could not make sense of a lot of the strange things that happened there. I was also severely traumatized by it. Can I, can I stop you every now and then? Stop me any time because I've got my okay. notes here. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm curious then how that feels. You know, imagine you went through these this this experience and you tried to bury it. Yeah. 
and then all of a sudden it's it's in the media big time and it's being resurrected how did that what was going through your head when that happened well the whole thing just terrified me because it's just saying that i wanted to forget about you know but um as i realized the enormity of it and how you know also how much more there is to all of it i realized that i have to talk you know and for people for everyone so that gave you purpose and a mission did it yeah definitely like well i mean i've been traumatized by it, but I've, I've got stronger now and i feel like it's you know time to you know i feel stronger <laughs> good time yeah to, to talk about more of the strange things you know that i couldn't make sense of as it was lifting in the media then did more and more people start to contact you um, yeah, that's the thing you see, you know, I was so mortified. It's like the whole thing that happened. I just didn't know what to, you know, the thing is he was very clever at making people feel like it's their fault. And after I was taken there, I, I ended up with severe panic attacks where I couldn't even leave the house for a year. I was hospitalized 10 times with panic attacks where I couldn't breathe. I thought I was going to die. And um, so I guess I was just, you know, I always thought, thought there was something wrong with me. But now I've realized that they did more to us than what's being let on. So panic attacks, hospitalization, that's because it was all being relived and triggered as it's rising in the media. But then you came but, through it. You came through that dark period and got strength to go on your mission. Is that is that what ha is what's happened? Yeah, panic attacks actually happened after I was taken there. When I was about 23, I started getting the severe panic attacks. I still I get them. I had them for 10 years. Um, every day feeling like I was going to die. Like really, like, and I'd I'd be taken to hospital, and they'd always say I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me physically. But you know, I still get them a little bit. That's why I'm a bit nervous and stuff, just generally. But I've got a lot better. I'm, you know, it's 20 years ago, so I've healed a lot, and I'm a lot stronger than I was then. Yeah, it's trauma, and isn't it? Why is that? <laughs> it's, it's the trauma. All right, yeah. Well, please keep going with the book. Oh, sorry. Yep. Yeah. So, um, where was I? Oh, yeah. So. It seems that many people have lied with regards to the Epstein case. It's been labeled as just sex trafficking, but it goes so much deeper. It appears they wanted to give the case a label and shut it down as quickly as possible. I was sex trafficked to Epstein, but I was never trafficked to other men through them. I saw countless other girls there, but I didn't see any of them being trafficked to any men in the two years that I was around them. Eventually, I read so. Um, sorry. Eventually, I had read so much that I started to put it all together. I, you know, I started doing research because you know of the weird things. But I'll get to that later. Sorry. I expected the book to mainly be about Epstein, but here's just a small part of it as it went deeper and deeper. I can't yet talk about all the details as as it requires a lot of explanation and time to understand. This is all done in the book. What I did find is that we probably haven't been told the whole truth about a lot of history. I went through the Bible, the creation of Earth, looking for answers. I researched Jesus, Joan of Arc, great artists like da Vinci and Botticelli. As the research got deeper, more and more started coming together. Do you want to ask anything in between? So that's, that, no, that, that, that's interesting that <laughs> yeah. you, this, this has provoked such <laughs> a wide range of research. Well, Joan of Arc, the Bible. You know, I looked into history to try and just figure out, you know, it's troubled me so deeply. And that's why I'm researching just basic history. It's a rundown of basic history is what we're doing here. Just important parts put together in the right way. 
And did you find what you were looking for in history? Oh, yeah, I found so much. Like the, this, you know, I've just been sitting there researching, researching. That's the thing. I was research, uh, you know, I was just because the whole thing freaked me out so much. I've been researching my phone, and eventually it was like I realized I had so much information just like sitting on me, and I thought I have to start writing it down. You know, almost for myself. I wanted to make a board like the FBI. You know, with all that. <laughs> so it's not. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds all crazy, but that's how you have to work with information. So, and then I just realized. Yeah, you know, I just started writing and then I just sat there and just kept writing and writing and just more and more just kept coming. Yeah, Ryan Roberts has got a big board he calls the Epstein map. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I'm I don't know if I know who Ryan Roberts is, I must definitely look into him. I've been staying away from watching too much stuff as well. Okay. So things like, you know, but he sounds very good. I must look into him. Thanks so much. He out of all the Epstein researchers, I think he perhaps has been researching Epstein the longest going back ten What's to twenty years. Something? Ryan Dawson. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan Dawson. Dawson, sorry. I said Roberts. I said yeah, Roberts. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yes. Virginia, Virginia Roberts. Ryan. Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, Ryan Dawson's amazing. And Whitney Webb as well. Have you seen Ryan Dawson's map? Um, no, I haven't watched recently, so I must have a look at his map. It sounds very it's, interesting. He's got this big board, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I oh. like the way he thinks. But the thing is, there was too much to put on a board. So that's why I'd had to become chapters. And then it just started growing and growing. And did that overload your brain? Um, it actually relieved my brain. Relieved your brain. Right. And also to sort of piece things together and be like, hey, because, you know, we, we we're taught history at school and they seem to leave out a few things and not tell us exactly. And also my mum's very like an open minded, amazing woman. And um, so I was brought up not to entirely trust the system, you know, to go with the system, but also not to like um, not to give myself over to the system. So as you're doing all this research of history, is your worldview changing? Completely. The book has changed my life. And everyone else who's actually looked at the book, like in my, you know, I haven't shown a lot of people, but like the chapters that I've been working on, they're also like, whoa, and the people, they get it. And your research, did that lead you to the royal family? Yes, it did. That's at the end. Or well, actually in the middle of, what I'm, <laughs> of my reading of my notes. All right, let's continue the reading. Okay, sorry. sorry about my. I'm really sorry. I have to read it out. It's just I knew I, if I. No, you're, you're yeah. fine. You're fine. It's good detailed information. We appreciate it. I just didn't want to leave out anything that's important. Of course, yeah. Um, here is a rundown of some of the chapters. So the blue butterfly symbol. One of the first things I wanted to research was the blue butterfly symbol. I put a blue butterfly on my diary in 2002 before even meeting Epstein. I also did a painting with the blue butterfly the same year. The same blue butterfly is used by Virginia Guffer as her logo on Twitter, and Sarah Ransom, another Epstein victim, also has a blue butterfly tattoo on her arm. Epstein started the Butterfly Trust to pay victims in 2016. This is not coincidence. You know, it's weird. So anyway, um, then another big symbol in another chapter I've written a lot about is the apple, because I started looking into the Bible and, you know, the symbol of the apple and what it's a big symbol in the Bible and the Garden of Eden and throughout history. Every great artist painted the apple. There are a lot of pictures of celebrities walking around munching apples. I don't have a photo of myself eating an apple. It's great. You know, it's, 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 it's weird. Okay, so it's used in many TV programs and movies, and it seems to be used as a symbol to make us feel guilt for sins that the system puts upon us. You know, like Eve ate the apple. It's like she's giving herself to Satan, actually, is what the, you know, that snake in the Garden of Eden. Who is that? Yeah, so I started looking into all this because of weird things I saw. And um, yeah, so I mean, humans are me meant to make mistakes. You know, those sins are the sins of the system. 
it's not human sins to carry. And I've got a lot, you know, when the book's ready and everything, I've also got a lot of pictures that I've put together to, you know, prove all this. So I'm not just sucking out of my, my thumb. It's it's all in history, you know. <laughs> I've analyzed like the world's like an apple. The apples we have forty percent the same DNA as an apple. Um wow. you know, I don't want to go into all the details that might bore people, but you know, there's a lot of weird stuff about apples and it's something worth looking into. Okay, and then um another thing obviously is the burning of the witches in 1430 the people they weren't witches the ones that burnt them were the witches they were nature people who were here to try and help people they were murdered a lot of them had cats the cats were burnt too if, if a woman just owned a cat she was burnt with her cat then in 1495 they had the bonfire of the vanities they burnt all the books on magic a lot of botticelli's paintings a lot of irreplaceable artworks you know i know some very educated older people and they don't really know much about the bonfire of the vanities that was like about 60 years they burnt the people then they burnt all the you know all the paintings and the books and all our the information that humans need really i i don't know really but you know i'm just like looking in, and then probably hit a lot of it which is probably you know anyway so then we get to the renaissance which was actually you know seems it was probably the great reset after they burnt the people and destroyed the vital information books and history then, you know, they hid it in order to control everyone, the Renaissance. That's when Da Vinci and Botticelli, I mean, they're all, yeah, actually, but they're all around that time. And then there was the Medici family running things. It's all in the book. <laughs> but anyway, um, then magic. Why did they burn books on magic? Maybe the world is being run through bad magic. Maybe books are being hidden somewhere. Maybe at the Vatican. Why are so few women allowed in the Vatican? And why have women been so suppressed? only able to vote in 1920. Surely men and women should be treated equally. Then we get on to fairy tales. You know, these are just a few rundowns of the chapters, you know, about fairy tales are just murder tales disguised as fairy tales, because often it's just about terrifying children. You know, like with Disney, there's always a parent dying. There's, they often don't have parents in the movies and you know, I've got a little boy and I don't like him watching things like that. Like in the lion king where the father dies it's very distressing i don't see why children should see things like that roald dahl brothers grim all stories about hurting children then we get to santa claus santa anagrammed as satan um also they both were red and black and they both punish children for being bad christmas is supposed to be about celebrating jesus yet the holiday stresses people out as many can't afford the extras that everyone wants and that ruins it it is supposed to be a holy day, not a day of glutton, greed, and distress. It's a day of families and love, not a day of materialism. You know, it's just like the systems lie to people in so many ways, and then people are like, oh, for Christmas, they've got to get this, and it's just stressful for people, and it's not right. Because pe the world's about love and not about comparing each things to each other and materialistic stuff. It's about love and being there for the people that you care about. Um, then the next chapter is brainwashing, you know, media, news, food, phones hypnosis you know when i was a child we went to watch a hypnosis show and my, my little brother's friend was so shy he went onto the stage and started doing the craziest things like he was going to be completely unlike himself that hypnotist was an amateur so you can only imagine what the professionals can do um then the phones you know the wi-fi the phones it's obviously amazing to have it but it's taking over the world you know and it's not good people spending all their time on TikTok and 
amazing talented people with their energy just being drained you know phones people are on their phones all day that you know the average person touches their phone screen two and a half thousand times a day that's the average so god knows how many other you know and i was one of the ones on you know on my screen a lot so <laughs> with all my research <laughs> you know it's not it actually starts driving one of it bar me so i'm limiting my screen time which everyone should do you got people sleeping with the phones and then notifications are going off all night it's it's madness no, no, it's it's not right it's people need their peace and quiet and it's it's there to serve us not for us to serve it then you know with phones yeah 25 percent of car accidents these days are caused to cell phones imagine, imagine, and that's just car accidents imagine like someone's like walking along by a cliff and they're taking a selfie you know we hear these stories and it's tragic and it shouldn't be happening and it's wrong and you know it's it's addictive and that's it's not the people's fault it's the system's fault for putting this addictive stuff out there you know they brought in uh, experts from uh, casinos in vegas on addiction uh, i'm all i know all about the sense yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the smells mm-hmm. yeah the, that's brainwashing again and in the shops of vanilla scent yeah it's all in the book all those smells they put there and also oh, i'll tell you the color coding red and green stresses us out because Green is go, red is no. You know, I mean, green. You know, green. Green is go, red is stop. Green is red, yes is no. So when you see it on the stock exchange or on the casino, I mean, the casino, confuses the mind. Also, Christmas, red and green. Then you just throw your money down because you're like, I don't know what to do. You know, just go for it. It, it takes away our judgment. It causes um, visual. I can't remember the word, but anyway, it's just there's a thing about red and green, and it's not used often. But when and wine bottles, <laughs> you'll find a lot of a few red and green things, and it's interesting. More color coding stuff, um, but yeah, it's just con- mind control, really. <laughs> Definitely. And so, yeah, it's, it hasn't been nice to realize how mind controlled I've been myself. You know, we all are. <laughs> it's a bit of a like, yeah. It's I thought you can't go cold turkey on mind control. Slowly. That's true. But it, it, you know, it's quite it's simple but sp- stressful. And then you're yeah, also with the phones, you know, people are becoming like zombies, forgetting who they are. Many people just ignore the people they love because they're so addicted to their phones. Um, so many talented people's hours going to waste on TikTok, creating free content, never going to get anywhere. Do you know if you get a million views on TikTok, you get 20 to $40 for it. Those are the statistics. I mean, people don't do the research and it's a lot of work to get a million views on TikTok. So we we've we've got considerable views on TikTok, and they and they sent <laughs> us they sent us for the first six months, they sent us a hundred dollars, I think. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about, you know, all these people, <laughs> like people from poorer areas where they really think they're going to, and they're spending a lot of, and they're talented and they're brilliant dancers. You see them on TikTok, and they're just getting used because in between there, the advertisers just put their ads in. It's just free content. Free content, and it, yeah. It's free content, and it's very, very wrong to do that to people because there's so many, like, especially like even in places like Africa, the people here are very talented with music and dancing, and they put all of everything in, and then you know what do they get back? Nothing. Jack. Yeah. Yeah, because they don't. People don't know to do the research. You know, it's good to check out because I was going to start a, a TikTok channel called Toys for Africa. I wanted to start like a charity thing, mm-hmm. and it was like slow to get going. I was doing it with. Um, friend of mine Nelly from Malawi and then um yeah it just didn't get going so we we're like I mean we're doing good stuff and then I was like I looked at my, a bit of research we wasted a bit of time but thank god not too much time you know because it's not right to use people like that yeah, those people sure. should be rewarded 
I'm shadow banned on TikTok right now and Facebook anyway. We've had, oh, stri- no, no. We've had strikes. We've had strikes on both. I don't go on those things. Yeah, I've never really liked it. I just went on it because I thought it would be a nice thing to start like a charity thing. And if we got, you know, if we got likes, we would have given the money to charity. But I was like, hmm, this isn't going to, it's going to take a lot of our time. And, you know, it's the, the advertisers. You okay to take a, a couple of, there's, there's a couple of questions have come in, Juliet. Let's yeah, see. Um, did you see any of the submarines on the islands? This is from Matthew Steeples. No. You know, I realized at that, that island, I was actually very, like, I didn't see a lot of the places. Like, um, I was actually watching a, I mean, I was there and everything, but that's, things were, were hidden from us. Because I was watching a documentary the other day. It was like an aerial view. And, like, when we were, when I was taken to Epstein's room, I didn't realize, I always thought it was a small, dark room. And I thought, why has this billionaire got such a small bedroom? And then when I saw in the video, there was like a big balcony in the front, you know, from this aerial view I could see. And I was like, oh, my God, I never saw any of that. He had a whole nother bedroom. The room where I was being taken was just like a little dark room. It wasn't the bedroom. But I always thought it was the bedroom, you know. I've got another question here from Agent Orange. How was your first relationship with someone your age? Well, my first relationship was with someone my age. Someone I was very, very in love with. An amazing that, guy. That was all before... Yeah, that was, that was when yeah. I was like 15. I had a boyfriend for a year. That was 15 also. And I loved yeah. him. I only had two boyfriends before Epstein. And they were, but the one was for a year. The other was for two years. And I was with him every day. <laughs> wow. So the symbolism then that you described, did you see symbolism used in the Epstein properties? You see, I was, the thing is I was young and also very frightened. Mm. So I wasn't like able i mean obviously one saw weird stuff there for sure like you know there was the crucifix of jesus hanging off um in in new mexico um the thing is when you're actually around them you almost can't think straight it like makes one feel weird being around those people you know imagine. what i mean like, i could think straight but it's like i actually saw like i was watching netflix and i saw a picture of me the documentary you know filthy rich and there was actually a picture of me one walking in the background and i almost felt like jesus it almost looks like i'm not really like even like you know just like I looked like I was sort of floating around. It was just like weird being there. One were, couldn't, you, like, were, were you in a, a perpetual state of tension? Yeah, I totally was. And, you know, they wouldn't allow any alcohol or drugs. Like he was very, like, and I didn't do drugs anyway. But, um, you know, I did drink, but I wasn't allowed to drink there at all. So it wasn't like, you know, it was, yeah. Like when I said I was floating around, I mean, it was just like, I looked like I was sort of not really in my body as much as I should be. I suppose when one starts thinking about hypnosis and things, you see, that's why I started thinking about all that. Because I'm starting to realize that a lot of people might have been like, hypnotized along the way here. And do you think Epstein was connected to secret societies? Well, definitely. I mean, that's another one I'm going to go to. But, the, you know, the secret societies, it's how many of them are there and how they operate. I mean, that's also, I've looked into all of that, you know, in the, like, in the book i've written about more about that like illuminati and the Let, let's get into some of that because we've only got about six or yeah. seven minutes left let me finish reading my stuff okay <laughs> if that's okay um well obviously the wi-fi you know affects people people should put their wi-fi off when they're sleeping i've started putting mine off and it feels a great relief to put wi-fi off use it when you need it don't keep it on all the time then another thing i got into with the research is god how, you know, people say that is God male? And I was arguing with, well, not arguing, I was telling a friend of mine, and she said, no, he's not male. And I said, you just called him he. So then one starts to look into that, and you realize that, you know, my, God should be nurturing like earth, 
like mother nature earth so you know with the whole system of you know obviously i'm a i believe in everything i'm not like a non-believer of anything i just think that god shouldn't be said that it's he's male because there are females around and and you know maybe god energy is your mother earth and her son is the sun her daughter is the water controlled by the moon and her father is the sky who protects us all it's you know, I think people should be praying to something that they believe in and that's where the energy comes from and that's where the energy is. Because when people are taken into, you know, a church and they can't see nature and, you know, who are they really praying to? And that's why prayers go unanswered. Because, you know, it's nature. That's who protects us. That's who nature provides our food. There's divine energies working through nature. You know, and I'm not saying like anything against any religious societies or anything. I'm, I'm a firm believer in the God energy. But I just think it should be thought of as male and female. And people should also not pollute the earth. Well, that's how it was until 2,000 years ago when the patriarchs overthrew the Mother Earth worship. Yeah, it's we, we need to appreciate Mother Earth because that's what protects us. And it's male and female. You know, the sun is a sun. Father is a sky. It's not about being female or anything. <laughs> okay, so the, the royal family... So recently, Nostradamus predicted the end of the monarchy after the Queen's death. I started looking further into the royal family and read about King Edward. He appeared to be a very good name whose, man, whose name was blackened by media propaganda. Many things they say about him don't make any sense. They called him a playboy prince, but he stayed with one woman, Wallace Simpson, for most of his life. Playboys don't do that. They also accused him of being involved with Hitler, as they had a photograph of them together. He was likely sent there by the royal family. He, he might have even been trying to stop the Second World War from happening. It doesn't seem he was really friends with Hitler, as there were no more pictures of them together. It seems media propaganda used those pictures against him to force him to abdicate. When Edward became king briefly in 1936, he had an assassination attempt against him. Someone tried to shoot him in a park. He likely left England out of fear. I watched a very good BBC interview with King Edward where he almost spoke in code. For instance, he always wore a bowling hat and his father wore a top hat and that they had different, believed in different traditions. The top hat was for the upper class and he chose to wear a bowling hat as he was a man of the people. He wanted to help people and fight unemployment, but the royal family did not like that. This is just what I've read. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> Sorry, because, you know, but um, they would rather keep everything to themselves and walk around dripping in diamonds. Apparently, the Queen's one crown alone is worth four and a half million dollars. This is one. I'm sure he's thousands of things like that why does someone need something like that especially when others are starving and suffering that crown does not serve the people it's a symbol of extreme greed and corruption the queen and also had cousins that had special needs they were sent to a home ignored never visited and apparently only sent a thousand pounds a year when people don't care for their own families how can we expect them to care for others aren't rulers supposed to love and serve the people of their country king edward is said to have had children around the world probably trying to release the royal bloodline among the people. Did you know that royals and apparently 44 out of 45 of the last American presidents are all RH negative, as well as many celebrities? That's very unusual since only about 8% of the world are RH negative. Might be a bit more of the, the percent, but it's weird. Um, why are we not taught more about bloodlines? Maybe they don't want us knowing. Our, yeah, okay, so... And are secret societies quietly running the world? Why do a few percent own over 95% of the world's wealth? They also own the media. 
Why are people starving when there's abundance of earth, water, and seeds? It should not be this way. It seems they want to keep people as slaves, poor slaves and rich slaves. It takes a lot of money to get properly brainwashed through the internet, media, and devices. I also started looking into Epstein's property in further detail. On, uh, I already told you about that, Joe, about the when I saw that bedroom. You know, I never even saw the, the, his bedroom. So, like, you know, there's a whole other area there. Also, many celebrities stayed at that island, but the accommodation there was way too basic for someone like Oprah. Was there something underground? Maybe a laboratory, sorry, <laughs> maybe a laboratory of some kind. Also, I met Michael Baird, Epstein's property, one year before the movie called The Island came out. The movie is about human cloning. Was he maybe doing research at Epstein's property? I mean, I don't know. I just I saw that movie recently. I was like, hey, I met that was a year after I met him there. I never saw where he was staying there. I also met two scientists there. What were they doing at Epstein's properties? Then I started researching cloning. They cloned a sheep in 1997. Later that year, Bill Clinton banned human cloning as it is unethical. Basically, a lot has been hidden from us and we want to know the truth. The book is nearly ready. It might need to be three books. Yeah, I think I've told you all this. Sorry, I don't bore everyone. Yeah, I'm just hoping that we can all find answers together, basically. I just want to... Right, we have got a bunch of questions right. have come in for you. We've got two minutes left. Sure. So we're going to have to do basically yes, no answers to these. Okay. Got, <laughs> I can talk to, fast. To, to get through them. <laughs> all right. Did Juliet find anything about Epstein charming or was he pure evil? That's, you know, he seemed like to be charming, but he was pure evil. Like, that's the thing. It was, uh, you know, one was just terrified of him. Being around him was like being a, you know, when a snake gets a mouse in a corner, that's how one felt around him. Your heart pounded and you're just like, so no, he wasn't actually charming at all, but he had a way about him where he, you know, he was, I guess, a very smooth criminal. Did Naja Hill ever contact you again after she introduced you to them? No. She became a Fox News reporter, I think. I don't. I never heard from her again. Was there no alcohol present on the island and in the mansion at all? Never. I never saw anyone drink there. Nothing. Who did you see on the island that would be recognisable to us? Well, that's the thing. On the, on the island, you know, it was many men and other girls. That's the thing. He didn't have other men on the island. I met him here with Bill Clinton when he was in South Africa, but I didn't see Bill Clinton on the island. I met one of those scientists on the, on the island, and otherwise it was just Ghislaine and then, you know, the staff and, and girls. Did so, you ever meet Peter Mandelson? No, I don't, I don't think so. Right, Juliet, we've run out of time. We've got another guest about to come in. It's gone so fast, hasn't it? It's always so interesting. Can you just tell the viewers where they can find and support and follow you? Um, well, I'm not really online at the moment, but soon I'll get the book out. And I guess I better start. I guess I'm on Twitter, but I don't really... Um, write anything on there what's your twitter handle i'll start doing I'll, it's just juliet bryant but i'll oh. start putting on there actually it's a good idea to start all right yeah start start building your socials up if you're going to be an author you've got to be everywhere ah, <laughs> but I've, yeah i've got to help get help legally with the book and stuff i suppose but not really because it's just all research it's just history put together and then it's my story of what happened and i don't lie so yeah I don't, well, like, for instance, Michael Bay denied being at Epstein's property or, or meeting Epstein, but I saw him there, you know. It was in New Mexico. I saw him there. So it's just like... It's your truth. Yeah, and so he can't really sue me when, when, you know, that's... 
I'm just, it was something I, and it only made a red flag for me when he said he wasn't there because I did an article to Daily Beast and then he said, no, he's never met Epstein, he's never been in his properties. And then I was like, oh, red flag. And then I started looking into him more, came across the movie The Island, and, you know, all of that. And then I was like, hey, this is weird. There's so much more to discuss, Julia. I'm going to see if Ash can schedule you to come back yeah. on, but huge I'm thank so you for well. spending time with us. Really thank appreciate you so it. Well. Thank you, everyone, Cheers. for watching. I'm so, I'm so grateful. Oh, thank to have you. All right, have a good day. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, my goodness. The stuff that Juliet has seen is just mind-blowing. And we need to get her back on. There's so many questions coming in then. Really appreciate her coming on. So our next guest, Andy West. This is going to be fun. Andy teaches philosophy in prison. And that is an admirable thing to do. Because when you try and do anything in a prison, it is a nightmare bureaucracy just to get in it. They view you as a threat to the security institution and a time waste. So they put roadblocks in your way from coming on. And once you're in there, sometimes there's lockdowns, there's madness. They can't even get the fellas into your classroom. Oh, you get locked in the prison because of some incident and you're locked down. And People who teach people in prison and go out the way are true humanitarians. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Hey, Sean. Um, very well, thank you. Um, such, a, such a pleasure to be talking to you as well. Oh, well, thank you. Where are you based? Uh, I just live out in East London. Um, it's, it's near lots of prisons, so it's quite good for work. Oh, yeah. I've, I've spoken a few of those prisons, I think. What mm -hmm. got you interested in prisons in the first place? Uh, so, I mean, I think the kinds of questions I talk about, um, uh, questions about what freedom really means, whether freedom is something that it's, it's more important to be mentally free or is it more important to be physically free, questions about time, whether time controls us or we control time questions about power shame hope home that they're, they're questions i think that are important to every life every person on the planet but i think maybe for some people in prison those questions can sometimes feel a bit more urgent sometimes so so it always felt like philosophy was a uh an interesting thing to take into prisons but but i suppose the reason that prisons uh, are a kind of preoccupation for me is just growing up. Uh, my dad was in prison, my brother was in prison, my uncle was in prison. Uh, you know, I'd go to my nan's East London council flat on a Sunday afternoon and there'd be lots of stories about the landing, you know, often shared for kind of entertainment value. You know, Christmas Eve, when I was six or seven, go visit my brother in prison. And I think if you've if you've seen that world, if you've glimpsed that world or gl glimpsed the edges of it, as I had, um, it really stays with you. And you come out, and you you know you're you'll know this so much from your own experience, I'm sure. But you come out into ordinary life and polite society and whatever, and people just don't really know that that place exists behind that wall. So um, I always felt this after my childhood i always felt this kind of uh it always felt very important to not forget uh 
about those experiences. Um, so I guess that was another reason why I went into prisons as well. Which came first in your life then, the philosophy or the prisons? <laughs> well, I was visiting, um, you know, visiting my brother in prison when I was six or whatever. Uh, I, I kind of, you know, I finished school having failed pretty much everything except two GCSEs, which to be honest, was pretty good. You know, my parents were pretty chuffed considering uh, what I was expected to get. Um, I, 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 I met a philosophy teacher um, uh, a year or so after that. And, you know, I was a very kind of alienated teenager. I was very oppositional, argue with everything. Uh, you know, wasn't happy with the world as it was, wanted to take everything apart, wanted to kind of, I was very stubborn, uh, very argumentative. And the thing is, that will get you thrown out of most classrooms, except a philosophy classroom, where it's actually quite good, you know, to to be at odds with the world, to to see things differently, to to find everything a problem. And And he kind of had the patience to see that underneath, you know, all of that, the way I was there was actually something that could be molded there and and he gave me a lot of time and support and um and then I went on to do philosophy at university after that which was great so when you are teaching it to prisoners then you know some of this language the vernacular like Kant for example critique of pure reason um i tried reading that in prison and i just ended up throwing it against the wall <laughs> so how how do you distill these concepts down for the prisoners yeah i think um i think a lot of philosophy teaching and a lot of teaching in general actually just fails because we're teaching people answers to questions that they haven't asked us um and i think what you have to do is you, you have to start a lesson with with some kind of story or some kind of stimulus that makes people want to ask questions. And then later on, when you're bringing in the philosophy, they've got a hunger for it. They, they want to know, oh, this guy Hobbes, does he think the same thing as me? Or, you know, am I more like Rousseau or whatever? But so I think using stories that keep that keep the philosophical problems very immediate. You know, you've got different men on the ship in the Odyssey, for example, when Odysseus is trying to get home. So I, so I tell a, a, a story, an episode from the Odyssey, and I ask the men, which of the men on the ship were the most free? And then we get into a discussion about who was free. Then we kind of realize we need some definition of what freedom actually is. Then I can say, oh, well, this is what Epictetus thought that freedom was or this is what Isaiah Berlin thought that freedom was and by that stage they're saying yeah that's what I said that's what I said so rather than it feeling alien to them you've you know you've you've built it up you've contextualized it in such a way that um people can connect with it so what is your definition of freedom <laughs> what's my well I'm always I'm always torn between two two poles actually and I think I think working in prison has um has made this worse for me. This <laughs> made me more confused about it because um, I, I think I've met people who um, have a very impressive and humbling, just mental fortitude, just focus, just that quite stoic um, idea that it doesn't really matter where I am. It doesn't matter what's happening to me. It's all about how I respond to it. So, you know, people who 
you know, there's 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 a man um, in in my book who I call Wallace, who, you know, he he'll be banged up 23 hours a day um, in a prison, and then on the hour they open his his cell door, he'll just stay on his bed reading, and he won't go out, and that's because for him freedom was a totally mental thing. It wasn't to do with movement. It wasn't to do with whether you were allowed out or not. It, he'd he'd made it a totally mental thing and i find that very impressive i also think there's another side of me that thinks to be free we have to live in a in an environment and a society that allows us to be free that that doesn't restrict us that doesn't try and uh block us from having knowledge and insight and access to the truth um that doesn't you know impede on us so I'm kind. I kind of go between those those two things. Um, I, haven't, I haven't figured it out yet, basically. That's interesting because in prison, I clicked up with this old guy who was a banana crime family, multiple homicide murder, doing 140 plus years. And he comes in my cell one day and he introduces me to like Norman Mailer, John Updike, Tom Wolfe, mm. authors. Mm. And he was a natural philosopher. I actually wrote his life story. I called it the Mafia Philosopher Two Tonys. And he said, mm. when I read one of these books, like Tom Wolfe takes me to some mansion in New York, or John Updike takes me to the pyramids of Egypt, mm, 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 and you know I can see the stones, or I'm in this mansion and there's the marble floors, and I'm out of the fucking cell, man. I'm not in. Mm, <laughs> this gets mm. me out of here. You know, I'm doing mm. life, but when I'm on these journeys with these authors, it's like he's mentally free, which ties into exactly what you just said. Mm, yeah yeah a, a few people ask me um you know do, do you think you've transformed any lives as a as a teacher as you think you know people have found redemption or whatever or some kind of salvation in philosophy and i don't know if it's just my background but i'm quite inured to all that i'm quite i'm quite numb to all those kind of grandiose stories of transformation i think what people need is something there in the moment and um there was a there was a guy who came up to me at the end of one class. He, he'd been inside, I think, by this stage. He'd done two very long sentences, and I think he'd, he'd been inside over 20 years and was very detached, wasn't interested in making new friends, kept himself to himself, but kind of really engaged in this philosophy class. And he just left me a note on my desk at the end before he walked out. He didn't say anything, and it just said, um, two-hour holiday um and it was just you know as as the men in that prison often described a visit as a two-hour holiday this was just um this was just an escape it was that you know being with updike it was walking on those marble floors it was being in the desert it was it was being somewhere else mentally and that and you know that's that's what i say to people when they ask you know has anyone ever turned their life around i'm like no but this guy had a two-hour holiday and that's that's kind of more the point really yeah, because everything, the value of everything is magnified in prison. So it's golden, you know, to have a visit. It's golden to receive mail. It's golden when someone comes in and offers to spend their time teaching you something. Just, you know, it, it, it's so precious. And I don't think the public understand how valuable that is to the inmate population. So, you know, we all salute the work you are doing. Have you found then that particular. Um, schools of philosophy genres resonate the most for example with me it was perhaps the Stoics Epictetus Marcus Aurelius 
because if the origins of some of them, you know, was slavery, they've got to develop this mindset that a, pl- a prisoner can use because he's in, you know, there's parallels. Yeah, Epictetus was a slave, wasn't he? And, you know, the Stoics were about, you know, how can we live a good life even though the tyrant is here and can chop our heads off at any second and take our freedom and that stuff that stuff often really really connects um a big thing a big um a big topic is uh free will and determinism uh and uh this idea of whether our choices are our own or whether we're just we think we've got choice, but actually we're just acting out some deterministic path set down by, you know, it could be God, it could be Newtonian physics and, and the, the, the physical laws of the universe, the laws of nature, all that kind of stuff. Um, and people are very split on that. I've been doing a few classes on that recently, and people either really passionately believe in that they have free will. Which, which often which often surprises people on the outside because they've they've all seen the Shawshank Redemption where you know in that world all the prisoners say they're innocent but actually I, I mean most people in prison I know uh, you know they'll take almost too much responsibility for their crime they'll they'll say yeah it was me I can't blame anyone else um, or I also meet people who believe life is entirely out of our hands and it's all determinism. I had I had a guy who came up to me recently and he said, are you the philosophy teacher? And I said, yeah. And he said, mm, I used to think the reason I was in here was because pre-de- I was predestined to be here. But <laughs> I've thought about it some more and I think I need another explanation. <laughs> Could I come to your class? <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, Dostoevsky and nihilism? Yeah, we look a bit at um, we look a bit at the idiot. So um, this idea, Dostoevsky, you know, he wrote this big old book um, called The Idiot, and it's about this man called Prince Mishkin, and um, he he lives in this world where everyone is corrupt, everyone lies, everyone steals, everyone is driven by their own ego, everyone's betraying the people they claim to love. And he he comes in and he's a kind of he's almost like sort of Jesus like he's kind, caring, empathetic. He forgives everyone no matter how much they wrong him. Um, he continues to be kind even to those who are cruel to him. And Dostoevsky said that if someone like this existed, if a truly good person existed in our world, we would think he was an idiot. <laughs> and um, I had a discussion about this with some guys um, in a prison a couple of years ago. And um, we were talking about whether, whether Prince Mishkin to sort of leave, leave that scene or or whether he should kind of play the same game that they're playing, whether he should change or not. And we kind of, this guy kind of said to me, I think Mishkin just really wants to be a kind of three dimensional human, no matter what, even, like even if everyone else around him is playing games and I said well what do you mean and he said well for me the weird thing is when I'm outside of prison I feel very two-dimensional because everyone knows I'm an ex-prisoner everyone knows I've got a rap sheet and so every time I you know just lend someone a fag or do something nice for someone or offer someone a lift they always kind of narrow their eyes at me and think 
what's this guy playing at? What's he about? Is is this some kind of plan? And I'm always kind of flattened into that criminal identity. Whereas on the landing, if I lend someone a fag, it's just like, oh, thanks, mate. And I'm kind of, I'm I'm allowed to be a kind of kind person on the landing. And it's not, it's not a big deal. And in a way, I feel more three-dimensional in here on the landing with all these criminals than I do outside, you know, in, in polite society. So, yeah, the thing I love about the class is we're always going to some really interesting, unexpected places. And, and often for the person talking, it's a bit unexpected as well. So it's always quite live and spontaneous. So another genre that resonated for me was the existentialists. And I particularly oh, like yeah. the harrowing and dark novels written by Camus. Yeah. Yeah. So I became really interested in Camus um, working in prison because um, my uncle, uh, kind of self-styled raconteur, kind of old East End villain, was away for um, kind of non-residential burglaries, you know, did about 10 or 12 Woolworths with his mates, stealing cigarettes or warehouses, that kind of thing. Um he, he first went away when he was 14. He was remanded for three months in a ball store. And then by the time he got to court, he was kind of thrown out. Judge said, what's going on here? But he was he was back in no time. But he was very defiant. He was very rebellious. Um, and, you know, uh, wouldn't march down to collect his food when the, when the officers called him. And they just kept layering more and more punishment onto him. And one thing they did was... Um, they put him in the seg and in the morning in the seg the guard wakes you up the officer wakes you up gives you a shovel and takes you outside and you for him he had my uncle had to dig a hole eight feet deep in the ground and then cover it back up at the end of the day and then next day eight feet deep and cover it back up and the next day eight feet deep and cover it back up and i said to him i was i was he was telling me this story and i was like uncle did you not just swing a shovel at someone's head did you not just go mad or break down in tears and he said what i did in the morning when they bought me my shovel i just stood up and i said are we digging holes today i love digging holes can we start now can we do it now and i was like what do you mean and he was like i just i just pretended that i loved it you know (laughs) and then i'm kind of i'm walking home you know trying to think about this thinking is he is he bullshitting me or like what's and i thought about camus because camus tells a story that's very similar to that and it's the myth of sisyphus sisyphus he's condemned by the gods the gods don't like him because he's a rebel as well because he's always kind of cheating the system and being cheeky they, they make him push a boulder up a hill up a mountain and then it rolls back down and then they make him push it back up and it rolls back down they make him push it back up you know, they're, they're trying to break his spirit. But Camus says Sisyphus is a hero because he knows that this task is futile. He knows the boulder's going to roll back down the hill, but he pushes that boulder with happiness in his heart. <laughs> he pushes it with joy and he uses the thing that was supposed to break him. He uses it to build him instead. And I thought, oh, that's, that's what my uncle was doing. So... <laughs> The, the book is full of stories like that where I, I talk about Sisyphus, say, in prison, and then I'm talking about it with my uncle, try, trying to trying to understand the world of prison, but also trying to understand my family history a bit as well. 
All right, so viewers, if you've got any questions, put them in. I know a few have come in. I've, I've just got one more subject to discuss, and uh, we could go over to the, these questions with Andy. So I recently interviewed one of the founders of the California Aryan Brotherhood. He'd served 45 years. He'd been shot 22 times. Remarkable story. He dropped out the gang when they started to sanction the murdering of family members, women, kids, uh, you know, husbands, wives, that kind of thing. So... Uh, but I asked him about the literature, the Aryan Brotherhood, you know, like required reading. And one of my favorite philosophers was in there, Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, now, Nietzsche, he's had a bad rap, hasn't he? Because he was commandeered by the Nazis after he died, kind of. And, and he's got this association with Hitler and this. But he he wasn't, that wasn't his school of thought was it nazism it was it was the quite the opposite what, what what's your interpretation of, of nietzsche's basically uh his sister wrote in a lot of anti-semitism to his uh writings after he died and he he said because a lot of his his a lot of his writing is about trying to reclaim power uh particularly the power that he thinks uh religion has taken from us uh in the form of teachings like original sin that are a lot about um making everyone feel ashamed and guilty of who they are he said that you know guilt it leaves us with a kind of debt and and that feeling that we owe people something he's saying we should shrug that off and we should reclaim a kind of power in life um now i think that's what the nazis found attractive because it's such a power hungry kind of uh ideology um but nietzsche said that you know people will misunderstand what I'm saying and people will. Bad things could be done in my name. So even he was a bit aware of it. How responsible he is for that is is an ongoing discussion, really. Yeah, wasn't his sister's boyfriend like a Nazi in the making? It was before Nazism, but he had the kind of viewpoints. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the preliminaries, the kind of brewing anti-Semitism and that kind of stuff, yeah. yeah. So Matthew Steeples has asked for your thoughts on Oscar Wilde and The Raven. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Oscar Wilde, um, um, De Profundis is is um, one of the, I think it's one of the great pieces of, of prison literature. Um, uh, there's a line in there that really sticks with me. So this is, this is the, the long letter he wrote from, from Reading Jail. And he says, um, being in prison has made me realize that I don't fear um, my heart breaking because hearts are made to be broken. What I fear is my heart turning to stone while I'm here. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm in prison and, uh, you know, I'll hear officers, people who've been in the game for 30 years or whatever, and they're talking about prisoners on the landing. And some of it, you know, some of it's really horrible. They're kind of the stuff you hear and you kind of think that's that's the challenge of being here actually is being around this much kind of harshness violence corruption dehumanization and and keeping your heart open yeah because they came up to me the prisoners right away and said look you got to get that look of shock off your face or else you're, right. gonna, get, you're gonna get preyed on um six months six months later i've got dead eyes you, you and if you look yeah when I got out, I had my driver's license picture taken. I look back at that picture now, and I, you just—you can't show any weakness. You—you you have to turn your face to stone at least, even if your heart 
might not be turned to stone, but you got to hide it. Yeah, that's that's so interesting because because I, I suppose it's one of the privileges I have as a teacher is you know I leave at five p.m. and I'm not behind the door, um, and so I can keep that openness and. I suppose almost as a teacher, you feel like that's your job in the prison is to um, offer that kind of open, that space for kind of openness and, and a sort of positivity that people aren't allowed if they're trying to survive the landing. Little glimpse of humanity. All right, so your next question is from Mona. Do you have a story of a prisoner who did a total 360 and fully identified and took on the ethos of a brand of philosophy or a philosopher. Also, are the French philosophers more relevant than the ancient Greeks? Mm. Um, I don't have a story like that, you know. Um, you know what? I hear a lot of those stories coming out of America. Um, and maybe that's just because it's part of the American narrative, this idea of salvation a bit more. But also, I think you've just got loads of people doing heavy time in America and doing it in quite a static way. Like um, here, you know, if you get, you know, our sentences are shorter. A lot of people in prison are just, it's just death by a thousand cuts. Like um, my brother was in 12 times, but it was a three months here and a six months there and a, okay, an 18 months and then back to a three months. And you can't, the thing is, if you're in prison for that long, you can't do anything to change your life. You can just, you can lose your flat and you can lose your job you lose your girlfriend you can't really there's no program of like thorough education or anything you can do in that time um obviously i've worked with like ipps and i work with lifers and stuff and you you can get your teeth in a bit more there and have more of a long-term impact but it's part it's it's almost how the system's built here it's built to to make it hard for people to change it's built for uh it's it's built to like make it hard for like meaningful positive long-term activities to happen in prisons right we've run out of time andy so please let the viewers know where they can find your book and follow you online uh so this is my book uh the life inside memoir of prison family and philosophy it's out of picador you'll be able to get it in waterstones or wherever you buy your books um i'm on twitter i use andy w philosophy uh, I sometimes tweet about the things we've discussed in my classes, the themes. I'm often tweeting about prisons, tweeting about philosophy, that kind of stuff. All right, let's, st let's stay in touch because um, I do donate a lot of books to prisons and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, yeah I, think, I think we could talk about some things together. Yeah. So, huge thank you for coming on, Andy. Really appreciate it. And we salute you for helping the prison population. Cheers. It's been great. Have a great evening, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. What a good guy, man. Honestly, I'm telling you, there's not many people who will t take the make the effort that it takes to go and help prisoners. There's so many roadblocks. Plus, it's dangerous as well, you know. We want prisoners to change, but there's always the ever-present uh, threat of something popping off, hostages being taken. So he's actually putting his life on the line to do that. I mean, you, you can't get better than that, can you? All right, so we're going to bring Dave Sata in now, who's banned from Russia. And then we've got Lily Dunn. Let us get the return of Stephen Knight. Let's find him. 
It's like go and have some veggie sausages. <laughs> so we got Stephen Knight in and David Satar. And I'll toggle off. David Satter, there we go. Hey Stephen, I'm going to toggle off. David should be coming in any second. Edgy sausage o'clock. Cheers. <laughs> cheers, cheers. I'm really looking forward to speaking to David. Actually, the um, conflict in Russia, Ukraine is is uh, a big one at the minute. David, welcome. How are you, sir? Hi, how are you? How are you doing? Well, Greetings. Wonderful. Greetings. Thank you for asking. Um, I suppose then we may as well start with the big one. Uh, some trivia. Uh, why exactly are you banned from Russia? What what happened there? Well, you know, this is this happened in 2013. This is not uh, something that happened yesterday. But at the time, it was basically the same problem I've had uh, really ever since uh, the Russian apartments were blown up in 1999, which is I tried to call attention to what had happened and tried to explain to people that this was carried out by the FSB. This is the Russian security service in order to put Putin into power. Now, uh, that message was just too fantastic for a lot of people. And I understand it. I mean, who can believe something like that? But it just happened to be true. I mean, the reality is that that Putin is an illegitimate ruler. I mean, he's a usurper. Uh, he came to power as a result of a terrorist act against his own people. But uh, they finally, they, 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 they took an interesting position toward me. In the case of Russians who said the things that I said, a lot of, several of them were killed. But I was, you know, look, I was an American journalist, a writer. I've written books about Russia. I was the former Financial Times correspondent in Moscow. I wrote for Wall Street Journal. I was kind of prominent in this field. And so uh, they, they took the view, and I'm glad they did, I guess, that they should just ignore me. That the uh, uh, the smartest thing to do would be just to treat this as a conspiracy theory, and treat me as someone who was making kind of outrageous uh, uh, statements and accusations that no sensible person would take seriously. And that continued really for quite a long time. And uh, I, of course, in the process, I never flinched on this the subject of the apartment bombings, but. I uh, nonetheless wrote about a lot of other things. I was writing about uh, all aspects of Russian life, the politics, the economics, the, the culture. Uh, you know, I wrote books. I, get, I attended seminars. Uh, I lectured in universities. Uh, but I, I came back to this theme of the how Putin came to power uh, you know, from time to time when it was relevant. Well, this was a kind of uneasy standoff between me on the one hand and the Russian authorities on the other. Obviously, they weren't, I don't think, particularly happy about it, but they they came to the conclusion, and it was probably justified, that they had more to gain by pretending this didn't exist, that I, you know, that what I was saying just, you know, was uh, 
conspiracy theory and, and they were in favor of free speech because after all, Russia is a democracy until the Euromaidan revolt began in Kiev in 2013. And they began to see masses of people out on the street uh, in a spontaneous self-organizing demonstration capable of overthrowing a kleptocratic ruler in their in this in the case of Ukraine it was Yanukovych Viktor Yanukovych but they they didn't they didn't take much imagination for them to realize that the same thing could happen in Moscow and they tightened up in all respects and the first the first person who was thrown out and the first action that was taken in fact the russians have a saying it's uh, in russian the phrase is pervelostichki means the first first the first swallows so in a way for the the wave of repression that followed in russia in 2013 2014 i was practically the first case and i was expelled and after that i couldn't go back to russia but it was basically because this meant you know they 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 thought they could tolerate me uh for a certain period of time and then they came to the conclusion that i was a luxury they couldn't afford but I kept writing about Russia, even being outside of Russia, and um, and uh, now, little by little, the world has come around to understanding the truth of what I was saying all along. Now it's no longer, no longer, you know, the the idea that the Russians blew up, blew up their own people and that that was the way in which Putin came to power. That no longer sounds so crazy anymore because we see the kinds of things they've done. And in fact, the U.S. government is regularly accusing the Russians of planning false flag attacks. And, uh, you know, throughout the world, people, you know, er, who earlier were doubters have now accepted uh, the truth of what happened without, of course, acknowledging their own previous mistakes. So that's where it stands. I mean, that's, uh, but now, now we've got another problem, which is how to reach the Russian people who are being thoroughly propagandized uh, in support of this war uh, that's going on in Ukraine. And I think once again, the, the, the truth about those bombings can be a big help because it, it can show Russia, the, the, the the Russian people what their what the regime really thinks of them, I mean they already know that they're cannon fodder, to some extent. But this brings it home better than anything I can I can imagine. Uh, yeah, I suppose my other question would be as well. I suppose a lot of people are very keen to understand the motivations and mindset and perhaps the the psychology of Putin because from outsiders looking in it. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine is a massive PR disaster for the country, if you want to put it in them terms. It's been met with universal condemnation, sanctions, pressure, etc. So why would Putin risk everything in that sense, uh, in terms of global relationships, uh, things like that, to invade Ukraine? What What is in it for him? Is it a case of honour? Uh, do we really genuinely believe this idea that he's going in to remove Nazis and other fascist elements? What What's in it for him? What's at stake here for him that's made this so important for him? Well, I think that you, we have to bear in mind that he, he there are some misjudgments here. Hmm. Uh, 
Russians typically, and this is absolutely typical of Russia, and it's been uh, it's a tendency throughout Russian history. They always underestimate their enemy. They underestimated the Japanese in 1904 at the time of the Russo-Japanese War. I mean, that was a classic example. They said that the they needed a, a, the Tsar needed a short, victorious war. Well, they ended up losing that war. They underestimated an Asian enemy, a non-white enemy. It's the first time a non-white uh, army had defeated a European power. And in any case, after that, there were many similar examples. They underestimated Hitler. They definitely underestimated the Finns in 1940 when they attacked Finland. They never assumed that Finland could, could mount such a ferocious resistance. They underestimated the Chechens in 1994. In fact, the defense minister, Pavel Grachov, said that I can, I can establish order in, in Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, in two hours with one parachute regiment. Well, they were defeated in Chechnya after 18 months. So, the, uh, so underestimating your enemy is not something that is unusual for Russia. And they definitely underestimated the Ukrainians. They thought that they could go in, they could remove and kill uh, Zelensky, and uh, it would all be over in a week. Uh, Putin would ride a new wave of popularity and support for his corrupt regime. The West would not react, and they would swallow what had happened, and then just as they did in the case of the annexation of Crimea, uh, but, of course, uh, the Ukrainians proved that they were a much more formidable enemy than the Russians imagined. Yeah, that's certainly true. I've spent a bit of time interviewing uh, Ukrainians at demonstrations uh, in my home city, and they've got some strong views on this, of course. But I suppose you mentioned something interesting there about the West not doing anything. Is there anything in our power? Are we completely hopeless in the, in this um conflict in, in, in the sense that we rely very much on Russia for uh, energy resources. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we talk about nuclear armed states. Now we've got that mutually assured destruction aspect of everything. Are we completely and totally uh, rendered useless in this conflict? No, far from it. I mean, we are, we are providing Ukraine and the UK in particular, by the way, uh, we're providing uh, Ukraine with the weapons they need. I mean, they're, they, they, they fight just as well as the Russians, if not better, because they're more motivated. Uh, but now, in addition to that, they have modern Western weapons, they have Western intelligence, they have Western support financially. Uh, Russia has, has uh, definitely, I think, bit off more than it can chew. And But the question is, what kind of barbarous uh, methods are they going to use in this situation as things get worse for them? And they are getting worse. Now, another point, though, that's very important, I think, to bear in mind is that this was an avoidable war. It didn't have to take place. And the reason it's taken place is because of the appeasement policies. And, the, and for example, the, the, the refusal to look the truth in the eye and face the reality of, of things like the apartment bombings. But now that we're in this mess, and now that people are being killed, and there's thousands and thousands of innocent people, and by the way, the Russian soldiers are also innocent in many respects, because they don't know why they're fighting, they don't know what where they're being sent, 
They're not being told the truth. The only people who are benefiting from this are Putin and his entourage, and they may not benefit for long, hopefully. What do you make of the growing speculation around Putin's health? There seems to be a lot of uh, armchair body language experts out there um, insinuating he has some sort of terminal illness or some sort of condition or something that may be affecting his mental faculties as well. Don't know. So that's I mean, a fine you, you know that, that kind of thing. You know, with that, 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 you know, that's uh, there's a cottage industry in that, uh, and uh, hard to uh, you know for us on the outside, it's hard to know. I mean, he's seventy years old. He's not. He's not. He's not a kid. But on the other hand, you know, these days. Uh, uh, there's no reason to believe that he's necessarily sick. So uh, I think we just have, I, unless we get some hard evidence, I don't think we can make our decisions on that basis. We have to just assume that he's, that he's physically and, and mentally competent. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfectly reasonable and fair answer to the speculation i suppose uh something that's in the headlines a lot especially of late is this this question of potential nuclear war uh putin obviously has been making noises about this or not really out. and i'm just wondering how how likely is that to be that putin may consider using nuclear weapons in this war if he feels sufficiently threatened well he's definitely considering it uh, and uh, it's not just that he's talking about it, uh, because uh, that is one of the options that he has. And Russian military doctrine treats nuclear weapons as no different from any other any kind any other kind of weapon, except it's much more powerful. But um, I don't think that he will use. I mean, here's here's the paradox. Um, uh, nuclear weapons won't save him. Uh, they'll lead to the complete destruction of his army in Ukraine. Uh, we can say that Putin is mentally healthy. It doesn't mean he's rational, and that he's or that he's think or he's thinking clearly. I mean, people can be perfectly healthy and be pretty muddled in their thinking. Uh, the ver the mere fact that he launched this invasion indicates that he's not terribly rational or at least that he's not being given very useful information. But, but uh, the, what's scary about the situation here is that Putin doesn't have, any, doesn't have any moral limitations. He's not somebody who will hesitate for moral reasons, but he will hesitate if he thinks that it will not be to his advantage to use those weapons. And for we, we, you know, we in the West have to construct a situation. I think we're large, we're largely doing it, or at least we're trying, in which he understands that he gains nothing from the. You, he'll kill a lot of people, but he will gain nothing ultimately from resorting to weapons of mass destruction. That's what we and we have to. We have that's the message that we have to convey to him in whatever way we can. Just had a message in the uh, the chat from someone called A Nexus. I'm, I'm not sure if this is true myself. I haven't heard it, but his he's made the point that uh, Zelensky has called for NATO to do preemptive nuclear strikes. Is that rational? Do you know if that's actually been if he's actually said that? 
uh, hasn't quite said it in so many words, uh, but he's he's called for uh, you know the West to take action to prevent nuclear a nuclear strike from taking place. You know what that would look like is uh, is another matter. Um, We, we have to be following the situation very closely. They're going, it's a war of nerves. They're going to certainly try to, to scare the West and scare the Ukrainians with the, the, the idea of using tactical nuclear weapons. But if they do, if they do, um, I think that you know all them all, all the wraps are off as far as the West is concerned in terms of, of I mean we we have the means to destroy the Russian army on the ground in Ukraine, uh, and uh, you know it's the, the Ukrainians have been fighting them and we we have not entered the war we, you know if, but if NATO entered the war you know. On a on a massive scale, in addition to the what the, the the Ukrainians, they use nuclear weapons. It's going to affect their own troops too, by the way, including the psychological uh, condition of those troops, which is none too good right now. I mean, they too fear a nuclear war. Uh, the only person who would benefit from this, even theoretically, is Putin, and doesn't follow necessarily that the entire Russian army and security establishment is going to be enthusiastic about what would happen to them in the aftermath of his using a, a tactical nuclear weapon. Talk to me a little bit about the flow of information in Russia then, because it's not it's not necessarily North Korea where everything's restricted and it's sort of like a, a circular loop of information. Uh, there, there will be people who have access to the internet. There will be people who are seeing information and videos of what is happening in Ukraine. And a lot of people will ask, where's the descent from in russia or uh, is it just a case of the consequences are so high for that sort of thing in russia people uh, are cowed into speaking up or could it just be that they you know are, are fed the propaganda and they do buy it yeah they do i mean the thing is a lot of the it's not so much the absence a person who wants information in russia can find it but those are the people who are already well informed <clears throat> and they they pretty much know what's going on those people who are kind of have been beaten by state media and state television to a kind of unthinking herd those people are not looking for alternative sources of information this is the problem and how to reach those people that is it's not simple i mean there there are a lot of things that don't work we couldn't label in the us russia state sponsor of terrorism uh, that will not work. Uh, we can uh, accuse Russia of aggression uh, and war crimes. That will not work. Uh, we've tried all these things in one form or another. Uh, but if we explain to the Russian people that this regime is using them as cannon fodder and cite things like the terrorist acts that have been carried out against Russia's own people, that might work. At least it might influence that part of the military and security establishment that is very dubious about what's happening. Um, 
so uh you know breaking through the information blockade is not a simple matter but but there are there are themes that we can address and that we can we can i mean the one sensitive point will be of course the fact that it's a senseless conflict that's being waged by a bunch of thieves who are at the top in russia and is doing nothing but piling up body bags uh, and that this is typical of the way they operate and has always been typical and the regime is illegitimate. I mean, that's a message that, that I mean, it will, there'll be tremendous resistance to it, but that's a message that at least in part can get through. Getting a number of questions, one from Ray J asking you to talk about the Minsk Accord, sorry, the Minsk Accord, Minsk. Uh, Minsk. Uh, and the Russians have been highlighting this to the UN for seven years, apparently. Well, yeah, the Minsk Accords, yeah, they violated them. Both sides have violated the Minsk Accords, but the Minsk Accords shouldn't be overestimated. I mean, this was at a time when Russia had unleashed an invasion on Ukraine. They had also shot down the MH17 Malaysian airliner, killing 300 people. Uh, and uh, in order to just, just to stop that invasion, the uh, uh the the uh, uh the accords were reached but the provisions of those core accords have not been honored by either side and certainly they're a dead letter now under circumstances in which i mean russia is no longer talking about getting people to obey the accords but is moving in in force in order to take over the country so uh i would not uh <clears throat> I don't think it's wise to get particularly hung up on the Minsk Accords. How does this end in your view then? We've got Russia, which like you say, have been, sorry, Ukraine rather, have been severely underestimated by the Russians and are resisting and obviously with the help of the West uh, in supplying weapons and equipment and things like that. But we have this huge nuclear military state uh, of Russia constantly applying the pressure it feels like a situation that is either destined to go on forever or someone's going to do something stupid how how does this end in your in your uh, opinion well the russian front could collapse uh they're sending hundreds of thousands of their i just heard from russia about someone who i know whose nephew said that, uh, you know, 35 years old being sent, three children being sent to the front and his family told him to flee. And he said, no, I'm going to go in and honestly serve my country. But there are a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands are fleeing. And those people who are arriving are going to arrive in units that are totally demoralized in which the casualties have been heavy without appropriate training. Uh, and without a clear idea of what they're fighting for, uh, that's not very promising. And if those losses, if those losses become very significant, it's those newly newly commandeered and mobilized forces that will be the first to break, and who could conceivably uh, create a panic that would affect everyone or at least large sections of the front. I think that's what the Ukrainians are counting on. You can't just, I mean, Russia's a big country. It has a lot of population, but you just can't, uh, you can't just scoop up 
hundreds of thousands of people who and take them from their civilian lives and throw them into a, a horrific conflict uh, without a clear explanation of why. And after promising that this would be over in a, you know in a short time, and it's not even a war, but a special military operation. Well, if it's a special military operation, why do you have to mobilize the population to fight it? Uh, and um, there's also a racial element in all this, uh, ethnic and national element, I would say, that the Russians are recruiting people from the non-Russian parts of, of the country, from Buryatia, from Dagestan, from the Caucasus, from the Far East. Uh, and those people, the, the, the non-Russians, non-ethnic Russians are, are, are absorbing terrible casualties uh, and in those areas where they they are ethnically distinct from the Russians anyway, there is beginning to be unrest, national unrest. At the same time, the Ukrainians are Slavic. So the 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 the, the ethnic Russians are are in a in a war in which uh they're in a mixed army, uh national, you know, multinational mixed army. Uh, in which uh, a lot of the non-Russians are going to begin to have their doubts. And the Russians themselves are going to be wondering why they're fighting against their fellow Slavs. Uh, and uh, so that the, the possibilities of national conflicts, in addition to everything else, are very significant. Do you think Putin wants to take the entire country of Ukraine, not just... Yeah, he wants to, but he has no choice of... no chance of doing it. He has no chance of doing it. I mean, uh, he doesn't remotely have the manpower, and, and with this kind of military performance, it's out of the question. Do you think there would be more pressure from Western side of this argument if we weren't so tied in in terms of energy resources things like that i think we have a similar issue with some of the things saudi arabia does and that we're just so reliant on them for resources well, the russians were count counting on that and they're still counting on it they're counting on that to split the 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 solidarity of the western alliance especially this winter whether it'll work or not i don't know with every report of their atrocities and the crimes they're committing that be, you know that strategy becomes less likely to, to to work because people are horrified when they see the way innocent in, innocent people are being victimized and the fact that you know they're bombing apartment buildings uh you know they've launched uh, missile attacks on cities very very far from the front for what reason it's not clear except to retaliate for maybe the blowing up of the Kerch bridge one of the common themes I noticed when interviewing a few Ukrainians in my home city was this feeling they had of apathy towards the, not them personally, they, they were kind of bemoaning the general public's apathy towards this conflict. And they're kind of worried that the world is Western going to look away. The Western public's Yes, apathy. correct. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's the example of one of the first invasions of a European country since the Second World War, for instance. And it's it's it couldn't be any more obvious and big that this is a huge huge problem and, and conflict that deserves our attention but it seems like it's very difficult to keep it on the front page of the news it seems like people are are apathetic towards it what could possibly explain that attitude towards this this conflict well i, I don't know what the situation is in the uk um 
I can tell you here in the US, uh, it is on the front pages. Uh, and uh, I mean, apathy, how do we d d describe apathy? I mean, Britain was one of the first countries, it maybe the most important supplier while while the US was getting ready, kind of revving up to supply the Ukrainians, the, Brit the Brits were already there uh, with providing exceptionally important uh, military assistance. So I don't, I mean, I don't know how you, how you assess that. I mean, it, I'm sure there are some people who are apathetic, uh, as there are everywhere. I mean, in Western Europe, in the U.S. But as for um, general apathy, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, and it, certainly it's going to be an issue for us this this winter everywhere. Uh, we're going to see high gas prices. We're going to see a lot of things that we don't like. Yeah, I think there have been some reports in the UK of the potential for blackouts. I'm not sure how much of that's fear-mongering or not, but yeah, it seems like it would be. It's going to be a tricky time. Um, David, is there anything else you'd like to point people towards? Where, where can people find more of your your writing and, and output on this topic? Well, yeah, I, I hope they will. They should go to Amazon.com and just take a look. Uh, my books are there. And uh, my website has a lot of, you know, the, my Twitter feed and so on. They have a lot of the articles I've been writing. And, of course, I, I always welcome uh the interest of readers and uh and i i wrote i mean my most recent book is a collection of my writing called never speak to strangers and that's available and i the warning that i issued about what uh, this war before it happened and the danger we were in is written in, in a book which was uh, appeared in 2016 is called the less you know the better you sleep Russia's road to terror and dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin, and I would, rec you know, I would, you know, I would recommend it to, to anyone wanting to see the background to what to the situation that we're in. Excellent. Well, I've just noticed our tireless producer Ash has put the link to your Amazon page in the chat, uh, along with your Twitter and website address. So, David, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I see it. See that as well. Yeah, and I'm just taking a look at the at the chat page uh, yes thank you th and thank you and glad to to uh, to be with you and uh, all the best you too take care thank you very much thanks what a lovely and quite clearly knowledgeable man yeah it's uh it's bigger than my brain the russia ukraine conflict it's hard to hard to fit it all in and know to know specifically what's going on i suppose part of that comes from the huge russian propaganda machine hi lily how are you i'm good thank you how are you wonderful thank you very much thanks for joining me uh i've been assured by sean that you've got an absolutely fascinating story to share with us this evening so maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh what your book's called and how would you describe what it's about yeah, thank you. Um, well, thank you for having me. Um, this is my memoir that I wrote. Um, it's called Sins of My Father and um, A Daughter, A Cult, A World Unraveling. It's about my father, uh, my relationship with my father. It's a memoir, a sort of stroke biography, and that I, I tried to into his life. Um, and I mean, he, he spent most of his life, most of my life absent from us because he left when he when I was six and joined the uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh um, religion. You know, That's how movement. you say that. 
I was I was, yeah. <laughs> I was weighing it up earlier and had a stab at it and I don't think it was my greatest moment I'll be honest it's not the easiest thing he then changed his name to Osho later after he'd been he'd been tracked down by the FBI um he had a complete sort of identity um rethink which you know thing was which was a sort of wise thing to do at that point but um yeah so I mean it's it was really it it kind of was spurred by me trying to understand um, some of the choices that my dad had made in his life. You know, he'd always he'd been a successful man, um, a hard you know hard worker. He was a publisher and a writer, and and did very well in his life. Um, and then also you know pursued his own sort of quest, I suppose, or his own um, journey of sort of spiritual awakening. You know, all this this sort of supposed kind of adventurous, um, quite. Um, you know, self-fulfilling kind of, uh, you know, could be seen as quite admirable. I mean, this was in the in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, but then he ended up a complete derelict. I mean, he he died tragically of alcoholism and the alcoholism only, only really hit him in the last 10 years of his life, but he lost everything. He was living in, the, in America and got deported back to the UK and became homeless and on the street. And that was really what sort of triggered those questions in me of just sort of, I couldn't quite understand how somebody could supposedly be, you know, on, on this sort of, you know, in, in a kind of rich, um, interesting quest, um, but then be so immensely self-destructive in the end. Um, and I think through the process of writing this book, I also understood a lot more about cult mentality and disassociation and I started to see his his the draw for him of joining this cult which was a very popular um, spiritual movement in the 70s and 80s some some people may remember it there were multiple western people in England and Europe who became disciples and would wear the colors of the sunset so they'd wear reds and oranges and, and walk around the streets particularly in North London um, which is where I grew up um, but um, yeah it, it's yeah so it, it was it was just it, it was just an interesting question for me uh, really to sort and, and then to, to delve into it through the research and really start to understand just the nuance of what happens when you join a cult, you know, the disassociation, the how it it attracts quite a lot of similar people, often quite a lot of narcissism, um, and then the, the breaking down of of the norms of your life, which makes you more dependent as well. So that very much happened in my in my dad's case. Okay, that's that's there's a lot to unpick there. At least of all the reference to the the FBI, so we'll yeah. we'll, uh, we'll certainly get into that. I'm sure, but I suppose just trying to get my head around the sequence of events. So, if I'm right, in I heard correct that he left when you were six years old uh, to sort of pursue these ideological um, uh, interests. And where where is it that he went? So it was based in Pune in India. Um, so Bhagwan started it uh, well he he sort of took on guru status i suppose or at least sort of started this spiritual movement or or started getting disciples i mean you know it, it can start very small in the 60s and mostly i think with indians and you know local people um and he was very talented and very charismatic and there was a lot that that drew people to him he was well educated as well um, and it's it slowly sort of trickled out into the West that this this sort of new guru was using um, you know new 
approaches to uh, self-reckoning, I suppose, in, in the West, which was psychoanalysis and using it with, with the more Eastern philosophy. So it was, it was quite new what he was trying to do. Um, so yeah, my dad, my dad actually met a stripper in a peep, peep club in Soho. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm a disciple of Bhagavan Sri Vishnish. Why don't you come to Pune in India and I'll, I'll introduce you to him. And my dad just up and left one day. So he disappeared. He didn't tell us where we, where he was going and he didn't come back for six months. Um, so for us, you know, it just felt like a big severance. We, we didn't know Sorry to interrupt. When, when you say yours, is this you and your mother or do you have other siblings? My as brother. Well? Yeah. Me and my brother and my mom. Yeah. So that's, that's a huge deal. That's a, a big family unit to leave behind there. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating to me that when you, I mean, I, I suppose my first question would be, uh, did you ever get the chance to see him again before he, before he died? And Oh, was, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I had a, yeah, I had a big relationship with him. Okay, um, good. I was just yeah. going to say, because I, I, I would imagine there'd be some sort of resentment in the way you speak about him, but I, I'm not getting that from you at, at the moment. No. So no, no. He, he leaves when you're six. And uh, when is it that he comes back into your life and how, how does that happen? Well, he came back um, and he came back with his girlfriend and he was dressed in the colours of the sunset. Uh, he was actually wearing a, a purple sort of Elise tracksuit, which was just very unlike him. And um, it's all, it was a slightly sort of weird. This, this must be the 80s now. At <laughs> this this is point. The 80s. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with sort of like plastic patches, you know, like elbow <laughs> patches and knee patches and yeah. And a mala around his neck, which was what they all, you know, were given as an initiation, which which was a beaded mala with a, a photograph of Bhagwan in, in, at its center. And um, and he told me and my brother that he had been reborn and that everything that happened before this moment of being reborn was was no longer. So <laughs> we were we were a bit like, oh, OK, so does that mean that you're no longer our dad? And um, and he also asked my mum whether um, he could move his new girlfriend back into our house. <laughs> Wowzers. So um, and my mum basically passed him his hat and said you're bonkers <laughs> so, uh, so um were your mum and your dad married as well they were married and very much in love um you know they they met when my when my mum was at uni she was she was like 18 and he was 19 and it was a very passionate first love affair um and but he was he was a philanderer, so he was he was sort of routinely um, unfaithful to her within the marriage, and you know she didn't know about it at the time. But looking back, I can see that there were um, patterns in his behaviour. You know, he was already sort of he was already he was already acting like an, an addict. You know, he was he was he was drawn to sex. He was drawn to cults he was a workaholic and then you know it, it kind of looking back I can see the traje trajectory I can see how it sort of ended up with alcoholism that's interesting so, because you think as well having sort of a family unit especially a couple of kids would be a, a more of a grounding sort of thing for people you often think about free spirits uh, and if you can use that term as people would maybe not having anything they can anchor to uh, mm. but this is somebody who had a family life young kids and just up and left and how how was this explained to you as a, a young child uh, from your mum um i don't know how she explained it to me i i just remember feeling a, a sort of terrible sense of loss and rejection um that you know that it somehow i had 
caused it. And mm. I think that's very common for children because they don't really understand. Um, and, you know, I, I really loved him. I mean, he was he was exceptionally charismatic and handsome and, and attractive as a person. He was very affectionate. He was warm. He was sweet. You know, he was he wasn't around very much, but he was very loving when he was. So, you know, to me, it was it was a it was a big it was a big pain <laughs> you know it was I, that doesn't quite sound right but it, it hurt you know it really hurt and and I, I think it took it took me many years to sort of try and understand well, well it took me many many years up until sort of I was grown up really to understand the, the motivation and, and that it wasn't actually to do with him rejecting us you know and, and actually writing this book was even more interesting for me he he, he had a major severance in his life. When he was seven, he was sent off to prep boarding school. And I think, um, you know, this was in the 1950s. And I think that was a very difficult thing for him, his kind of temperament. He was quite dreamy and creative. He wasn't academic. And, you know, it, it didn't suit him. And I think lots of boys had that kind of upbringing and education in this country and in the UK and and I think it damaged a lot of them I mean you know our, our, our country is run by men who who went to boarding school at very young ages and you know were, were abused and mistreated and away from their families and I think that that I don't think it's an excuse for what my dad did and, and what happened, you know, later on in our relationship as well. I mean, he, he sort of, he was a series of betrayals really. Um, but I think it possibly explains the lack of um, connection and maybe a sense of being a bit of a split self, you know, at home, but also having affairs at home and then going off and joining a religious cult and thinking that we would all, be okay about it you know there, there was a kind of disassociation in, in his behavior did he ever uh, attempt to apologize for it or try to empathize with how you felt being left behind in that way no never and one of the philosophies of of Bhagwan's religion was this um that everybody had to be responsible for themselves so you could go around treating people however you wanted to and you had no responsibility for how they would be affected by that. So there, it was, a, it was, a, it would, it really um, uh, sort of supported the, the selfish way of life. Basically, you know, you, you could be completely self-centered within this religion, this this spiritual movement, and you know, which was fair enough if you were a, a consenting adult and you wanted to go around. I mean, it, it was also known as the sex the sex cults. They were all screwing each other, and you know, it it it, it actively broke up relationships. It actively broke up nuclear family. Um, if you were an adult and you were consenting then fair enough you can go around behaving in a selfish way and not paying the consequences for that but when you have children involved you know it's it's very difficult and um my dad so i i confronted i mean my mom inevitably confronted him about his behavior um um and i did at various times in my life and he always said the same thing to me which is that i was responsible for my feelings and i could be happy or i could be sad it was up to me it had nothing to do with him so i never ever got an apology from him and i think in a way that might be partly why i ended up writing the book because i just you know i, I wrote it after he died but 
you know, I couldn't quite let go of this kind of need to try and resolve stuff because I never mm. ever had him help me in that. So I kind of had to do it myself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that really does make sense. Yeah. I suppose it's somewhat of a, a cathartic experience in in many ways to get it get it down on paper and get it out into the world. And I, I before we completely get sidetracked, and I forget, I'm swinging straight back to the FBI again because <laughs> at, at, at what point does the Federal Bureau of Investigation get involved in your your and your dad's uh, life? Well, he he was my dad wasn't in. So if if any of you have seen Wild World Country, um, it's a documentary on Netflix, uh, which is about Bhagwan's spiritual movement, um, which Sean you know, uh, now... Sean lovingly recommended it earlier on in the show. It, I think he's a big it fan. It's brilliant, yeah. And it, but it focuses very much on what the Rajneeshpuram years, which so it started in Pune in India, and then it very quickly got big. You know, too big for the ashram there. But when all these Westerners flooded in in the early seventies, and um, excuse me, they had to find bigger premises and they ended up in a, in a ranch in Oregon, in America, but they ended up there under false pretenses. So they basically lied to, to, to get this, this premises because they, it was farmland. So they were supposed to keep farming it and they obviously weren't intending to farm it. It was going to be a big, I mean, they actually built a city. I mean, it's very impressive what they did. It was just rugged, rugged, wild country. And they built a city um, a working community and um, they all did it together and um, but you know the the, the local um, Oregonians were on their on their tail the whole time because they knew that this was they were there under false pretenses and so there were various attempts to try and hold them to account which the uh, Bhagwan and his secretary and he had this woman called um, Maranan Sheila who was his closest ally um, were constantly lying their way out of it and and slipping through loopholes in the law. Um, and this built up and up and up. Um, and they gained in more and more power. And basically, they were trying to manipulate the votes in Oregon. So they started to take over the local town. So Antelope was their local town there near the ranch. Um, and they wanted to manipulate the votes so that they could get into the parliament you know the local not the parliament but the local um, seats to have more power um, so it became quite a kind of megalomaniac um, religious spiritual movement which you know it's kind of like it wasn't really it was just it, it that's what it developed into it was all about power and, and money um, and so this got to such an extreme I mean they, they shipped in a whole load of homeless people to vote for them which was a crazy sort of scenario that they did just to have more people, more, more, more seats. And then they, and, and the build up to the elections, they, um, they went round the local salad sort of buffets, you know, the restaurants, and they poisoned the salad bars with salmonella and a whole load of local residents, Oregonians came down with salmonella. So, you know, this was attempted, um, I can't Murder. believe I've never seen this documentary. Yeah, it's, you've got to watch it. It's, it's crazy. It's due a um, Hollywood adaptation as well, I believe. I yeah. Surely. <laughs> yeah. And they also they also attempted to um to sh I mean they actually kind of planned to shoot one of the I'm not sure it was the mayor but it was one of the um more you know the, the kind of influential people in in the area. Um there were also 
I mean, what what was uncovered and what you'll see in World War Country is that 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 their attempted murder. I mean, they they were basically making poisons on site in in Amrajnishpuram, and they were also killing people within the the ranch, so within the religious group, who weren't who were standing up and and um, challenging these these top kind of lieutenants of Bhagwan. So it all got really, really out of hand, and the FBI, um, you know, were building up a case against them. And um, I think if you watch the Wild World Country, I think um, one of the local antelope residents went through the bins, so ended up getting his hands on a whole load of documentation, which was proof, basically. Oh, the other thing is that they got done for immigration fraud because. Um, they, when they moved to America, they, in order to get people to live in America in the ranch, they had to marry into, you know, in, right. and marry other Americans to get American passports. So that's what they eventually did Bhagwan for. So they, the FBI flew in, Bhagwan flew out because he, he heard that they were coming in. So they managed to escape on an airplane, but they got intercepted on their way. Um, and he was he was um, arrested, and as was Sheila, and a few other people. So yeah, it all got really messy, and that's when he then got. So he he got off. He didn't. He, Sheila went to jail. He got a, a, off with because his his health wasn't very good at that point, and he got off with a, a, a quite a hefty fine. Um, but he was deported from America and not allowed back on American soil. He had to go back to India. Which is when he changed his name to Osho. This is this so, is right. Okay. So uh, but, what? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, my dad was wasn't in America at that point. He was living in Italy in a commune where I used to spend my summers. So this was when I was a teenager. So we would hear all about this on the grapevine. This was all kind of coming to us from um, other sannyasins who were, you know, living in 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 Oregon or or in various other communes around the world. When did he get deported back to the UK then, and for what reasons? My dad. Yes. Yeah, um, he got deported back because he was so ill. So that was that was just before he died. It was a couple of years before he died. That was um, in two thousand and five um, or six. Um, and yeah, so he was working in America. He had a green card. He was writing and publishing books for the American market and doing very well. Um, but he just became a very very sort of um, self destructive alcoholic, and that he. Uh, was just drinking you know excessively and um not eating and um you know it really kind of got hold you know the addiction got hold of him basically um and he lost everything so he he lost his home he lost his business you know he, he just couldn't keep up with the payments on stuff so the bank took everything away and then the Bene Bene benevolent society actually paid for him to get a plane back to the UK but he'd also he'd, he'd he'd he didn't have medical insurance so he had sort of like hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical costs because he kept on ending up in hospital in intensive care from falling over or having a seizure or you know I mean I mean he was he was taking painkillers and you know he was he was he was just completely out of control at that point 
So um, he ended up in a hostel in Ilfracombe in Devon. And um, yeah, and then died in a and b on his own, which was pretty miserable. Did you get to see him before this at any point? I saw him when, um, so I got married in 2005 um, and my dad came to the wedding and, and that's when we realized quite how serious things were because his health was, was not looking, he was not looking good. He was not in a good place. He couldn't even sit really through the ceremony. And um, then I went on honeymoon and we got a call um, to say that he'd gone into intensive care because he'd, he'd fallen down the stairs, he'd broken his neck. Oh, wow. So we called our holiday, our honeymoon short, cut it short. And me and my brother went out to California to try to get him into rehab. So we had this sort of nightmarish week there where we just, you know, it, it you know, the, the man that we knew was, was, was not there really in him. You know, he'd just, he'd sort of, he was just so far gone at that point. He could barely, I mean, he, you know, he was incontinent. I was, I, we spent the week just trying to feed him and clean up all his shit, basically. Um, and then we went back to the UK. I was convinced I should stay and look after him, but I was advised not to do that. Um, and, you know, I just got married and I was very quickly pregnant. Um, so my brother kind of took over his care. So when he came over to the UK, my brother kind of went to him and was, you know, the sort of first port of call. And he he was trying to protect me because I just had a baby at that point. So it, it all it was all very sort of, you know, bound up in my own sort of attempts to try and free myself from this this influence. And, and it just kept on pulling me back. So, yeah, that sounds like a very difficult time um i suppose people uh listen and watching me look on the on the surface of this as a, a story of a man who sort of abandoned his family to pursue to pursue sort of uh you know personal ideological or even hedonistic um goals mm. that he had uh and he you know kind of returned and it all it kind of ended tragically in the way he he left uh, you again uh, in that sense so I suppose a lot of people will be wondering what sort of themes have you picked out to focus on in your book what what is it about this story for you that you find compelling enough to share it in book form yeah I mean I think you know I think his his story is extraordinary in its own right um, because of the risks that he took and the adventures that he had you know he lived in in lots and lots of different countries and had quite an extraordinary life, a very rich life. Um, but I think the main thing about the book is really about how we reconcile ourselves, I suppose, with somebody who is... So when we love somebody, you know, in our family, which I think a lot of people relate to this, who are ultimately just really difficult people to love, and they don't really give back what what we give them, or they don't give us what we need. And that that can be particularly the case with a daughter and a father, or even, a you know, a son and a mother. I mean, you know, it, it can be that sort of dynamic of so I think that was what I was mostly interested in was that enduring love that I felt for him, even right to the end, you know, when he had done nothing really to deserve that. But I couldn't quite shake myself of him. You know, it was this sort of elusive um, figure that he had 
that he was to me because he was always absent. So, I mean, I call it a tantalizing absence. Um, and I suppose, you know, it's a journey for me to kind of come to accept that and understand that and also find my, my own autonomy eventually, you know, not, not be in his shadow anymore. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, you know, I, I get there in the end, um, in, in my way, um, whereas he doesn't, you know, he, he sort of meets a pretty nasty death. And so there are lots of questions in that of kind of karma and, you know, and, and, you know, was he just incapable of really sort of seeing himself clearly, you know, was he incapable of really facing up to himself? So I think it, I think it relates to, you know, a, a daughter or a, or a son who may have had a, a sort of narcissistic parent but also it asks those kind of important questions about, you know, what do we owe our children and, and what do we get in return? Because it's a very difficult thing when you're faced with a parent who needs care, not that he was actually asking me for care. I think he, you know, but, but then they were never there for you. I mean, you know, if you read the book, you'll see that there were various, you know, quite significant betrayals. I mean, one of his friends when I was 13 tried to have sex with me and my dad knew about it and he actually encouraged it. You know, it was part of the, the so-called spiritual movement was for young girls to be initiated by older men. So this was something that I got completely entangled in and it was really damaging to me. You know, it, it sort of set me up at, in my young life to have relationships with much older men. So there was that there was that sort of, you know, needing to put men on a pedestal. Follow, and my dad's second wife was eighteen, so. <laughs> wow. You know, it's quite extraordinary, but um, so yeah, it was it was really coming to terms with all of that, really, and and how that could have happened, and how I could have carried on loving him as well, regardless of that. Do you mind if I ask? Is, is your mother still with you? Is she still around? Yeah, she is. Yeah. Did she ever she's, find she's an, any closure on it or any resolution or how? how yeah, the... definitely. She, I mean, she's my mum's amazing, and she has been really supportive, you know, of me and my brother, you know, in, in our lives, but also through the process of me writing this book. Um, and I think, you know, she's because she, she's a writer herself and I think she's she's always understood my need to to work through things through my writing but also she's never she never really kind of you know she could have she could have got up against our dad but she didn't she kind of allowed us to work it out ourselves and I think in the end that might have exposed us to more difficult stuff but I think it meant that we did find closure in the end because it came through us you know it came through our own process with him so yeah i mean i'm very close with my mum cool so i've just had a, a nice comment in the chat not a question but a nexus has said they're impressed by lily and how she's worked through all this with great insight and love so that that's a, well, that's a lovely, lovely sentiment that's cer you. certainly coming yeah. through uh, so maybe you could just uh, remind our, our listeners and audiences uh the, the the title of your book and, and where's the best place to pick it up yeah, it's um, Sins of My Father. Here's a copy. Um, and it, you can get it from any bookshop. It's uh, Amazon in America. You can buy it in America as well as the UK. 
um yeah amazon barnes and noble um waterstones you know it's 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 out there and it's coming out in paperback in march so but the, the hardback is still you can get it at discounted rates um on amazon and audible and yeah ebook as well do you read uh, do you read it yourself on audible I, I do yeah yeah i've read it and i've been told it's it's really effective in my voice as well which is nice excellent i shall add it to my list but uh lily thank you very much for joining us and, uh, and telling thank us all about you. your book it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure thank you so much okay take care all right i think that about wraps it all up thank you everyone in the chat for your lovely thoughtful questions uh this evening and, and thank you for watching at look atwood unleashed uh 77 uh i've been told to remind you uh you can you get this and it'll be remain available across all the platforms such as youtube rumble and audio boom uh if you would like to find me send me some praise love foul mouth abuse if you like i'm not picky uh you can find me on twitter i'm on there uh stephen knight at j uh, g spell checker and also the night tube on youtube thank you very much everyone have a pleasant evening all right. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, Sean. Bye-bye. All right. And if you guys are still listening, Alex Jones just got fined almost a billion dollars over the Sandy Hook stuff that he said. That happened. That just came in. That news just came in while we were broadcasting. I've just been watching it on um, one of the crime channels, and they showed the handouts coming down to each person that was affected like 60 million for this person 120 million for this person obviously alex jones doesn't have that money he's gonna have to file bankruptcy now but i think there's gonna be a negotiation with what assets he's got to handing that money over to the people that were hurt by what he said about sandy hook the family members so that is a massive news story. I think Alex Jones and David Icke are two of the biggest conspiracy researchers in the world. I've learned a lot from both of them. And um, it's just a shame, man. You've got to check, some, got to check your facts out sometimes on these things. You can't just go making things up. So Ray J said he's already filed bankruptcy. Wasn't allowed to talk about it in the court. Okay, yeah. So anyone who gets a judgment awarded against them that's greater than the assets, they're automatically bankrupt. And then the whoever's in charge of the bankruptcy, the court official, then would have to decide where the money goes, exactly how much. And of course, the people who were murdered at Sandy Hook, a nexus, yes. And then the family members that had to endure people, even with guns, showing up at their houses accusing them of being crisis actors and faking it so it is just a completely mind-blowing situation it's tragic you know i think that broadcasters are on a mission to expose certain things they're doing a lot of good work in the world because a lot of our eyes have been opened my eyes were opened by david ike you know back in the jail in 2004 when someone shoved Alice in Wonderland 9-11 under my door it just put a lot of things in together that I'd been noticing in the stock market and 
I credit David with waking me up to a lot of things. With Alex Jones, you know, my book, Clinton, Bush and CIA Conspiracies, then it's like a bunch of different stories woven together, including Freeway Rick Ross, who I discovered on Alex Jones' channel. It's also the story of Linda Ives, Gary Webb, and Kiki Camarina, the cop that was featured in Narcos, Mexico. So I did learn a lot from Alex's broadcast when he was going quite strong on YouTube. And But to um, if you're going to accuse people of being crisis actors and they've got dead kids, I mean, there's got to be some kind of way to check that stuff out before you go running your mouth and set yourself up for a billion dollar payout. That is absolutely insane. I've never heard anything like it. So I wonder how he's going to regroup from that because he's going to be wiped out and his reputation. I mean, if you've got family members of dead kids getting hounded by people with guns, you're, it's going to put your reputation with a lot of people in the gutter, isn't it? But I do imagine he's still got a lot of hardcore followers, so we'll see how he regroups from that. But just wanted to share that news with you before I sign off. I think I'll watch um, a little bit of Peaky Blinders now on Netflix, getting through that. And the Dahmer, the Jeffrey Dahmer stuff. So huge thank you to all the Patreons. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for all your questions. It really keeps it flowing. And it generates... It provokes answers in unexpected areas when you guys send all these questions in. So that's that's great. Makes my job a little easier as well. So thank you. And we've got Tommy Dunn, grandfather of pranks out of Manchester tomorrow at 6. I think we've got podcasts coming on Sunday and Monday there are days and yeah so perhaps see some of you in the live chat tomorrow if not take care out there wherever you are in the world huge thank you to Ray J for being the omnipresent moderator <laughs> and again thanks to all the Patreons for helping build this wonderful community alright so good night everyone take care cheers <laughs>